Why doesn't the hero reveal himself and tell us all your real name? You do have a name. My name is Gladiator. How dare you show your back to me? Slave! You will remove your helmet and tell me your name. Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North, general of the Felix Legions, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Welcome to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where each week we take a film out of the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And my name is Ian Woodington. We are so close to the end of our little decade-by-decade decade celebration of film. Episode 98, we've reached to two, the year 2000, and uh, quite an epic film we're going to be discussing today. So epic, in fact, that we couldn't just do it with the two of us. No. We we have a Ridley Scott fanboy here, and Ian. Admit so. Admit it, please. Oh, I am I am head over heels in love with Sir Ridley Scott. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. To not to not have uh, BAFTA, introduced him. BAFTA <laughs> Fellowship winner 2018, <laughs> well, Sir Ridley Scott. I'm so sorry. I don't, I don't have his biography memorized. Um, From South Shields. Okay, cool. Uh but no, we also needed a, a Russell Crowe fan, and I'm uh, very happy to introduce Josh Nielsen. Josh, how are you? I'm doing great. Uh, thank you for having me, first of all. Oh, of um, course. Longtime fan of the show, but even bigger fan of the movie we're going to talk about. You know, no offense. Um, <laughs> I'm a huge fan of what should be Sir Russell Crowe. Mm. You know, I'm sure eventually down the line he'll, he'll get there. But Does um, Australia have an equivalent of that? Well, he's actually from New Zealand. Oh, yeah. shit. Well, no. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> so, way, uh, way to offend all of our Kiwi fans. <laughs> I'm, I'm done here now. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't work like this. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. It's such a great start. All right. Well, well, well we're, we're happy to have you. Thank you. I, we're going to get into it. There's a shitload to talk about. But before we do that, we got we to gotta start with some recommends. So, so, Josh, what do you have to recommend this week? Oh, that's a that's a great question. Um, I've actually, well, a, actually, a fellow Russell Crowe movie. I so, I just saw again for the first time. I gave it a pass when it came out. Um, I guess a few years ago now. But uh, I'm talking about Nice Guys with Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling. I actually saw it the first time, and it didn't it didn't really hit me. But this time, leading up to this, I wanted to rewatch some of Russell's movies that I haven't seen in a while. And um, for those that haven't seen it, it's it's uh, or, or know about it, it's it's, a, it's supposed to be a comedy. And um, admittedly, Ryan Gosling is kind of the one who shines in that one, in my opinion. But um, if you give it a chance, if you don't take it too seriously, I think it can really hit some some funny notes, and I think it's worth a watch. That, that's excellent. It was it made my ten best of the year. Really? Year. Oh yeah, loved it. Here, here's what I'll say: uh, I don't recommend watching that movie when you are trying to fill out loan paperwork on your first home purchase, uh, because I. 
I don't remember it. And I, I here's the thing: I've only heard good things about it, and yet my memory is I was fucking stupid because because the loan application process for buying a home is fucking stupid. Yeah. So uh, I, I wish I had more of a good take yeah. on the nice guys because I, um, that's also that's Shane Black, right? That is Shane Black. And I fucking I love Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Oh yeah. And I mean, it, if you're a Kiss Kiss Bang Bang fan, it is like second only to that as far as Shane Black's work is yeah. Yeah. is concerned. It is fucking hilarious from start to finish. And those two mm-hmm. were just, I think, meant to be together on yeah. the film. They just worked so well. My favorite moment in that movie is such a throwaway little thing. It's where uh, Russell has just come out of beating the shit out of Ryan Gosling. He like, breaks his arm and he says, oh, tell your doctor. It's like a radial fracture or some shit like that. And he comes out and his daughter is there. He's like, oh, his daughter's like, oh, you're a friend of friend of my dad's he's like yeah sort of and she's got a she's got a you uh, a couple a box of yuhu the the chocolate milk and she offers him one and he's like oh shit really he's, he's eating an apple he like tosses the apple so nonchalantly over his shoulder into the bush grabs one and he's like i haven't had one of these in 30 years and then the next cut is him going home to his uh his uh, apartment above the comedy store in like 1977 LA and he's got an entire case of yuhu. Yeah. <laughs> I think that is just such a great fun little throwaway detail. I love it. And I didn't that's the that's the kind of uh, those kind of cuts in humor I didn't quite appreciate the first time. I will say to I guess to its fault it does have a prerequisite of you need to have, you know, a, probably like a two drink buzz going to really get the oh, full benefit. Yeah, definitely. You know, for it to hit its best. Um, but if you can get past that, uh, which was no problem for me, um, it's a good time. Yeah. Shane Shane Black can be a little testy and I'm I'm really glad that that film wasn't set at Christmas even though he yeah. still manages to get a fucking Christmas reference in at the end. I don't know what his we have to at this point I think call it a fetish on the level of Tarantino's foot fetish is is Shane Black's fetish for Christmas cuz Iron Man 3 no reason for that film to be set at Christmas but it is because it's a Shane Black film. Yeah, fine. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah, that's that's his thing. That, it's his thing. I'm not. I'm not. Well, I am judging him a little bit for it. I don't. I don't know what it is. I just want to know. I just want to get inside his head and go. What is your obsession with Christmas, bro? <laughs> so, well, when that happens, please let me know how I, it goes. I will. I'm, I'm yeah. very excited. About I'm. It. I'm sure it'll go very well. Yes, indeed. Um. So I. I was gonna do a Russell Crowe recommendation, but I'm. I'm not because I'm sure we'll get into Russell Crowe. Wait, is your recommendation White Squall? No, it's not. Oh my God, it's not. It's not White, white Squall at all. That movie is so bad. No, um, I. So, but I'm sure I'll talk about it. But my my recommendation is not related to either Ridley Scott or Russell Crowe. But um, it's something that I I kind of got talked into, and uh, uh, Melissa had watched the first season of this Netflix show called Dead to Me, and she was like, uh, "There's a second season, but I'm not gonna watch it because I want you to watch the first season with me." And I was like. Yeah, okay, sure. I'll, you know, we'll check it out. And I didn't know much about it except for I, I knew that it was Christina Applegate and uh, Linda Cardinelli are the two leads in it. Like, But that's all I know. And what happens in the first episode, and I will tell you kind of spoilers, but it's it, it, it runs so much deeper than this that it, I'm not going to give anything away. So um, Christina Applegate's husband has died. He's been hit, hit and run in a car accident. Um, and uh, she has two boys. And Linda Cardinelli is the one who hit her husband. Uh, but she ends up befriending Christina Applegate and moving in with her to kind of help with the kids and the stuff. And from there, it only gets more like I'm going to use the word outrageous, but it, it, I think it's doing too much because it's it's a comedy, but it's also really dark. Lots of crying, lots of grieving. And yet it finds these moments to just like fucking 
coming out of nowhere, just make you bust out laughing. Um, James Marsden is in it. Um, he's great. I, there's just a lot of like a smaller roles. Like a lot of people you'd be like, Oh, I know you from something, but I don't know quite what it is. Um, the show managed to basically each episode introduce something that was like, Oh fuck. No, what? Like, and just to keep you engaged like throughout. And it's like 30 minute episodes. We went through two seasons in like two weeks. It was, I mean, you know, and we could have probably done more, but, um, the right amount of comedy, the right amount of drama, Christina Applegate, who I never, honestly, I would say I never took seriously as an actress, um, is fucking killing it in this show. Killing it. I really, it got renewed for a third season. I cannot recommend the show enough. Liz was a really big fan of it. It's she loves it. really good. It's really good. And I, and we, I was bummed because we, we did, we started one episode of the Kaminsky method, which I know I'm going to like, uh, because Michael Douglas is in it and he's playing an acting teacher and it, there's a lot of in jokes and just the one episode I saw. So I'm, I'm really excited <laughs> to watch that, but, um, dead to me. I fucking really, really like that show. So there That's you great. go. Sounds great. Awesome. Uh, Ian, that leaves you. That what leaves you me. And I have, I do have a Ridley Scott film. There you go. And this will be no surprise to either of you. You've both known me long enough to know my affinity for this film, but our listeners may not. And my recommend to pair with Gladiator this week is Kingdom of Heaven mm. from 2005, specifically the director's cut. Now, Adam and I have bat the ball back a couple of times about director's cut and their validity and things like that. Now, Ridley Scott is known as being the sort of grandfather of the whole sort of concept of director's cuts going back as far as Blade Runner. Uh, this one, it really makes a difference. I mean, really, really does. He, on this film, he's sort of become a super producer in a way. If you look at his list of TV credits, his list of film credits of other films that he hasn't directed. But in this case, he really had to wear both hats as a director and a producer. And he had to make a lot of compromises knowing that, look, I've got this vision for this huge epic three-hour and ten-minute film, but I also know that that's not commercially viable. If you go over two and a half hours, you lose a screening a day. So the the theatrical cut got, as it deserves to be, quite widely panned because it is just a sort of shell. It's, it's a hollow shell of itself. Um, the director's cut, 100% the way to go. So this film stars uh, a huge cast, so just bear with me. Orlando Bloom, Michael Sheen, David Thewlis, Liam Neeson, Kevin McKidd, uh, Martin Sokas... Uh, Alexander Siddig, who some people will know from Syriana. Uh, Ava Green, in sort of a breakout role for her. She would go on to do Casino Royale the year after. Brendan Gleeson, in one of my absolute favorite roles that he's ever been in as uh, Reynold de Chatillon. Uh, Jeremy Irons. Uh, John Finch, who was the original Kane from Alien. We talked a little bit about him on the Alien episode, so he finally got his redemption and actually got to be in a Ridley Scott film. And then we've also got a great uh, two great cameos. One of them is Ian Glenn. Most people know him from Game of Thrones. He pops up right at the end as uh, Richard the Lionheart and then Edward Norton, who is behind a mask the entire film and deliberately left his name off oh, the credits. that's oh. right. Yeah. That's he plays uh, He plays King Baldwin in that. Okay. So this is a film set in the, the Crusades, set in the 1100s, uh, about a French blacksmith, the Orlando Bloom character. He has pretty much lost his faith. His wife uh, died in childbirth. Oh, sorry, they had a child that they lost, and then his wife killed herself out of the grief. Um, and so, you know, we're in the dark ages. We're in a, in, a, in a time where people really believe that, you know, she is damned for eternity. She's going to hell, and so now he is left ultimately with nothing. And his 
his long lost father played by Liam Neeson comes home to sort of claim him and take him back to Jerusalem with him, take him back to the Crusades. Along the way, Liam Neeson uh, gets killed and now it's up to Balian when he gets back to Jerusalem to kind of take over in his father's stead and become the sort of protector of uh, Jerusalem. This is at a point in the Crusades where uh, the Christian, it's a Christian dominated territory with a very shaky truces, very shaky alliances. Uh, but as you would come to expect from any sort of great epic Ridley Scott film like Gladiator, it is epic in every single sense of the word. And as I said, this director's cut is a much more fully formed, fully thought out, you know, realization of, of his vision. And there's a whole subplot, uh, including Ava Green's son. And there's a lot more stuff at the beginning to really flesh out the characters. It's just the epitome of what a director's cut should be and it's not easily dismissible as oh it's not you know five or ten extra minutes here or there it is a properly different film i'm kind of surprised a a director of ridley's uh, caliber and renown especially at that point with as you said this is 2005 yeah uh, that would have that much change or um a little control over the theatrical release right. and how much change went over in the director's cut. And well, you'd be you'd be surprised just how few directors have final cut and right. what little final cut does actually mean for the directors who who actually have it. There are so few of them and studio interference, of course, they've they've got, you know, the business side of things to to you know, yeah. be concerned with and I think I think Ridley I think Ridley thought he he was doing the right thing, but at the same time I mean, he really kind of shot himself in the foot box office-wise. Uh, but, but luckily, we're in an age of, of DVD and Blu-ray and digital, so you can right. have these alternate cuts. And- well, I don't want to step too much on, on talking about Gladiator, but one thing I wanted to bring up, which I'll just, I'll just bring up now because we've, we've mentioned box office a little bit, is that uh, Gladiator, when it came out, was the third highest grossing film that year. The second only to Mission Impossible. How to, oh, the the, world, worldwide? No, the U.S. Okay. All right. Sorry. I... Do you want to do that over? I do. Okay. Because <laughs> it was second worldwide. <laughs> Maybe we'll just keep it all in. Okay, it's no. up to you. So, no. You can see the infighting. <laughs> U.S. gross. It was the third highest grossing film that year, behind Mission Impossible 2 and um, uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Um, but but mostly, all, all I was driving at there was that, you know, Russell Crowe and Ridley Scott were able to basically put this movie out that had no IP, was not a part of the franchise, was not recognizable in any way, except for that it was kind of about real people. But even then, we can talk about that later, too. <laughs> like, not even really. Mm-hmm. And, well, and it's the same case with Kingdom of Heaven. It's all based in reality. Balian was a real guy. He really handed Jerusalem back to the Muslims. I mean, so th- that is all based in reality. Same with Gladiator. It has that sort of basis. But it's it's doing the Quentin Tarantino thing before... Quentin <laughs> sure. ever ever sure. thought to do bastards, but just but just going back to what Josh said, like it, you know, it's it's you know from an outsider perspective, you know, somebody who who put out like you know one of the highest grossing films of the year, won Best Picture. A few years later, he gets or the next year he gets nominated again for Best Director for Black Hawk Down. Like clearly, he's got sway going for him, and I get. But to go back to what you said too about wearing two hats, right? Like the director and him probably mm-hmm. wanted to like just watch the cut I want you to watch, but also like. Is it going to make any money if we do it that way? Right. I, yeah. That's just all the shit you got to think about when you're doing oh, this. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, there we go. Three great recommends. Yeah. And they're all over the place. All different types of, of, of genres and formats. So mm-hmm. perfect. There we go. So now we get into it. We're now, we're into 2000. And um, 
We're talking about Gladiator. We've already mentioned uh, directed by Ridley Scott. Written by David Franzoni, John Logan, and William Nicholson. By all accounts, Franzoni's script was a fucking mess. Um, uh, I, I did watch the... Um, the GQ interview with Russell Crowe that, you know, talk about your iconic roles. And he, I mean, even, even now is basically like, yeah, there was no script to work with when we got there. Yeah. John um, Logan came in and patched up some dialogue. And then I think it, it, right at the end there, William Nicholson was actually the guy on set doing rewrites kind of as they went along. And just want to throw out too, that, that John Logan and William Nicholson uh, are wonderful playwrights of their own. So if, like the really great pieces of dialogue of which, Half of my notes were almost just quotes from the fucking movie. Um, <laughs> That's lo- easy to do. A lot of props to, to to John Logan and William Nicholson. I know um, that their script was nominated for Best Original Screenplay. It didn't, it didn't win. We'll talk about that later. But um, you, you got to really appreciate what they did, considering just how much th- there is about, like, the script was, like, nuts and bolts, but, like, no detail. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, The Rock as well. I remember listening to the uh, Criterion commentary that had... Ed Harris and Nicolas Cage and them talking about, yeah, we had half a script, maybe. Like, they wrote most of the dialogue that's in The Rock. Same with Russell Crowe claims that he wrote quite a bit of his own dialogue. Same with Joaquin. Yeah. And they both felt extremely uncomfortable saying these kind of things. Oh, it's okay. What does he say in that GQ interview? Okay, I guess I'll just be a Roman general now. Yeah. yeah. And then saving, you know, making sure that they, they had an air of silliness on set so that they save all that seriousness for in front of the camera. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about who's in this movie. Um, obviously we're, we're basically revolving around Russell Crowe who plays Maximus and walking Phoenix who plays Commodus. Um, but also we have Connie Nielsen who plays Lucilla. Oliver Reed is Proximo. Um, I'm sure we probably will spend a solid five minutes straight of Ian just talking about Proximo and how much he loves Oliver Reed. Um, it was impossible to light the man badly. He is he is my number one not, classic Hollywood man crush. Not the first time you've said that on on this on this podcast. And it probably won't be the last. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> um, we also have uh, Derek Jacobi, a uh, very famed Shakespeare actor, playing Gracchus. Uh, Jaiman Hunsu as Juba. Richard Harris as Marcus Aurelius. Rolf Mahler as Hagen. Um, you know he's the big burly dude. Who who pretends to die? That's a, that's a funny. That's a funny good bit. Moment. That's a good bit. <laughs> um, Tommy Flanagan with his Glasgow grin playing Cicero, um, and then here are just some other ones because they're they're in it. And so you know, just yell at me if I leave somebody out. Uh, so we have David Schofield who plays Falco and John Shrapnel who plays Gra- uh, Gaius. Those are senators. Um, Thomas Arana who plays Quintus who kind of is buddy buddy with with Maximus and then not and then kind of again later and he, I have some I have some thoughts on that character. Um Spencer Treat Clark who plays uh Lucius, he is the son of Lucilla. And then Svenol Thorson playing Tigress of Gaul. Have you seen Abraxas? <laughs> is this a movie that's on your radar? It's called Abraxas. Oh my god. The only other thing I know him from is The Running Man. So, oh that's true. Yes. Yeah. So 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 Svenol Thorson is in a movie called Abraxas. And he's in it. It's him and Jesse Ventura are the two leads, and it is hot garbage. Oh my god, it is bad. But like, we're still worth watching. Bad. Or? Oh yes, yes. Oh, okay, like, okay. like, like, like yeah. real bad. Okay. Like, ooh, yeah, yeah. Like funny bad. Um, so who who did I leave out? Did I leave anybody out that you want? Uh, well, to? I would I would throw a shout out to David Hemmings, uh, who plays Cassius. He's the an, an announcer at the Coliseum, and as IMDb's trivia will tell you, those pointed eyebrows are in fact his own. Yeah, wow. one of his last roles was um, 
Also one of, uh, or was Sean Connery's last movie. Um, That's right. Being of Extraordinary Gentleman. Unfortunately, but he had quite Another a great classic. career. He was in, <laughs> yeah. well, you can, you can go back and check out Adam's Below Freezing episode on that. It gets quite. Uh, oh, I got heated. It My gets, wife it gets loves contentious. It gets contentious real She was confused quick. as to why we were covering it on the show. Oh, it's so good. It's, um, it's a really good one. I would also call out um, Omid Dajali, who's a British comedian. He, a lot of people will recognize him from The Mummy. Uh, he's the guy that sells uh, Proximo, the queer oh, giraffe. Gotcha, gotcha. Mm. And uh, he he has a great quote where uh, right before they did that scene, Oliver Reed asked him, "Hey, are you a method actor?" And then actually squeezed his nuts. And he's quite proud of that. He says that I bet there's very few actors out there who can say Oliver Reed has fondled their nuts. End quote. <laughs> Let's hope that's a short list. Right. And then we Just also for the have sake of uh, his you know reputation. I would call out Giorgio. Uh, Cantarini, who's Maximus's son, he's very famous for being the little kid in Life is Beautiful, mm-hmm. and uh, Gianna Fascio, who is Ridley Scott's wife. Say, why bring that up? Why bring her up? I'm just well, kidding. If, well, she's been in uh, every Ridley Scott movie since Gladiator, except for his most recent two, Alien Covenant and uh, All the Money in the World, which I did rewatch I, right before this podcast, and so, that that holds up okay. fantastically well. I, I want you to well, well actually, we're, well, I think we're there. I think we're yeah. here at this moment. So, so uh, Ridley Scott is in the mo- is in the movie. Ridley Scott is in the book uh, four times, and we've discussed one of his movies already in Alien. Um, he's also in there for Blade Runner and Thelma and Louise. So let's just let's take a like a few moments now, and we'll just let's have a like a little Ridley Scott chat because I also spent this week basically watching things that were Ridley Scott and, and Russell Crowe as much as much as I could. Um, I already tipped my hand saying that you watched White Squall, and I did. White I did watch White Squall. It's Dead Poet Society wow. on a boat. Yeah, man. Uh, not good. <laughs> Just not good. I mean, uh, Je- Jeff Bridges commits. He's he, pretty good. He is. It. He is. But it's almost worse because he's he's leaps and bounds so much better than everybody else. Oh yeah. And this yeah. was like a like, and this is a who's who of like young male actors in this. Like it's it's Scott Wolf and Ryan Phillippe and Jeremy Sisto and the guy from Full House whose name I can't remember, but he had a recurring role on it and um. Fuck, there's more. I just can't. I can't think of their names. Um, not good. Not not a good. Not a good movie at all. I did watch All the Money in the World, which I had never seen. Did um, you dig it? It's okay. Uh, it's it's fine. I liked it much better on second viewing. It's, there's something about that movie where I think it's going to be remembered more for the behind the scenes sort of fiasco where they had to, you know, they said fuck Kevin Spacey because fuck Kevin yeah, Spacey. Yeah. And they recast him at the zero. They literally were a week away from release, pulled it, and then reshot everything with Christopher Plummer, who was actually the original choice for Getty, uh, over a period of three weeks, over like a Thanksgiving break. Um, out of I, I don't even want to know how much it cost them to do it, but I think it's I think I think it was really great that the Globes recognized both Christopher Plummer and Ridley Scott with nominations. Yeah, I, I yeah, I, and you can see I think. I think almost my biggest issue is that you can see the work. Like it's, I think it's really on the surface, the extra stuff that they had to do to get him in there. And that's, that's no fault against anybody. And I think I almost felt like this was like a, like a class experiment. Like, like you made a movie. Now you got to film somebody else and put them in your movie. And it's not, I mean, and it's not bad. I mean, Christopher Plummer was great, but it's, it was, it was okay. It was okay. Um, that bums me out. I really like that one. That one is growing on me. But quite my a bit. my question that I wanted to, to put out here is: so it's Alien, Blade Runner, Thelma and Louise, and Gladiator. 
are those the right four movies of Ridley Scott to be in the book? He can have no more, no less, just for this experiment. I, I think so. I, I, I'm I, I pretty really happy. struggle to think of anything to either to replace it with that, that really should go in there. Well, and... you're, you dig on Black Hawk Down, right? I dig on it, but I don't know if it's one that you have to see. All right. See, and that's that, fair. That's so. I, I, I off mic. I told you I, I watched that at a very inappropriately early hour this morning. Um, I think it was two thirty a.m. It was two thirty a.m. Um, <laughs> and like that movie is is really filmed so well. Oh, it's great. It's, it's so. But I also it's it's tough because I, I, I look at this list. I think I. Asked what I would watch first, I would pick Black Hawk Down over Blade Runner, and that's just out of personal bias. But I also don't think I could take Blade Runner out for Black Hawk Down. It's it's too it's too iconic. It's just too goddamn good. It feels like too important or too influential of a of a movie to not have in the yeah, list. And that's that's the thing too is yeah. it does it lives up in this like this upper echelon of film. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like with Alien, they're both in the sort of rarefied atmosphere of. Yeah you know, at this point, classic film. Yeah. Mm. My only other Ridley Scott take I wanted to make at this moment was have you've seen matchstick men? Yes. Yeah. What are your thoughts on matchstick? Men? I love matchstick men. I, I, have you seen it? No. Okay. You, I, you will really like matchstick. Think men. So? I, I really think you'll like it. So here's the thing. It is not a bad movie. And I, most and I watched it. It was like a Sunday night. Kids were in bed, open a bottle of wine. And it was very entertaining. I, I really liked it. I liked what Nick Cage was doing. It was a role kind of, I, I feel like just tailor made for him, um, not too much Nick Cage, like just just enough. But he does him. he does still go full Cage in it. Well, sure, because but I think it it's a role that allows it. It's not Nick Cage deciding I'm just gonna do it. Like mm-hmm. I think the role w- it really helps for that. Um, the I won't say what it is, but okay. the the twist it oh, doesn't so work for me. Really, no. I think the twist is solid. Man. It, where it, it's it's I, I it's not built on anything. There's like no. It's like twist, but we won't explain how or why. It's just twist. I just can't. I can't buy that. Well, I, I, it's kind of based on Sam Rockwell's greed, I think. But okay, but that, maybe, that maybe is what it's based that's, off. That's, of. that's not enough for you. I, I, it's no, it right. comes out of nowhere. It's it's it, there's nothing. And of course, it's not enough because there's nothing. Well, I think if we saw Sam Rockwell being more of an opportunist towards the beginning of the movie, it'd be an easier sell. I just don't. There's there's. I, mm. I, that, the I, end I'm of that just, movie I, is not good. I'm just playing devil's advocate. <laughs> I wanted to lie. It like was such a letdown because the movie is so charming. Yeah. Through the like the ninety percent of it, and it, then it just like it, slaps you in the face. And it's so different for Ridley, which is yeah. the other thing I appreciate. Here's my hot take. Uh oh. I love a good year. Like that is his. That is a film that is like at the bottom of the fucking pile when people rank Ridley Scott yeah, it's movies. Sitting about twenty percent, right? It's on, like twenty percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Tomatoes. So it'd be good fodder for oh snap below freezer. Always <laughs> looking for material on below. So freezer. if you're looking for something to pair with, it wasn't streaming anywhere. I couldn't. I couldn't get. Oh it. really? Okay. I and I wasn't gonna. I wasn't gonna pay money for it. I wanted to. I wanted to try it. I have. I didn't end up watching it in the lead up, and I. I wanted to try it, but I unfortunately it's, watched the trailer and it's really charming couldn't even get through the trailer i mean it's a predictable <laughs> romantic comedy you yeah. know what's going to happen at the end but i mean if you want to hear me genuinely belly laugh like yeah. that film fucking does it for me like russell is so fucking good in it it's just really just, just tickle you a little bit it, it, yeah. well yeah <laughs> you got to find out where i'm ticklish though <laughs> that, that does remind me though I was, I was thinking about ridley scott as a director his career spanned like how many years now when was his, uh, first, his first film was 1977 77 uh, it's been 
first. Yes. Yeah. He still held, I mean, he still is as an iconic director, but can you think of a director that's had such a up and down, at least if you just look at the theatrical release of his movies and the critical reception in box office numbers? I mean, his highs are very, very high, but his lows are also very low. Like Exodus, mm. Gods and Kings, I've seen that twice, and it just did not get any better on the second viewing. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. Because I was, I, I was trying to jump, I was, in my mind, I was jumping the end of your question, like, yeah. Scorsese. But, but, yeah. but... I, I don't think his lows were ever that low. Scorsese? Scorsese? Yeah. 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 I, I don't know. Have you seen Bringing Out the Dead? I, I have. It's uh, it's okay. Yeah. But but it's also not, it's not like White Squall. <laughs> it's, yes. It is definitely better than White I'm Squall. The one White that, Squall is so bad. You know the one I wish I had rewatched and I just ran out of time was G.I. Jane. I have not seen. I haven't seen that. I, I haven't seen, seen it. I haven't seen G.I. Jane in probably 20 years. It's been a. I've seen it, but it's, it's a been long a hot time. Ago I remember Vigo. I just saw the TV cut. I remember Vigo being really fucking good, in right? It. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, cool. Okay. Well, there we go. There was our little Ridley Scott corner. I'm sure we'll talk about we'll, him some more. We'll come back episode. to that. You oh, know, yeah. he he did direct the film we're talking about. Um. So accolades. Here we go. Um. At the Academy Awards, it it won a bunch of Oscars. One of them being Best Picture. Also won Best Actor, Best Costume Design, Best Sound Mixing, and Best Visual Effects. What it lost was Director. Uh, supporting actor, those are both to traffic. Original screenplay, that it lost to Almost Famous. Editing, also to traffic. Cinemat- cinematography, production design, and score, all lost to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Um, Can we mention the bullshit that is Lisa Gerard not being included I was in gonna, that score I was nomination? Gonna, I was going to mention that. Now, at the Globes, her it, name was on there too, but it's right. one of the Academy rules that yeah. only one composer yeah. can be listed as the nominee for that, which is so weird considering how many people they list on like sound at times, it's like, Mm -hmm. here are the 17 people who did sound for star Wars, the force awakens. And we can't list another composer. Yeah. Okay. Considering that her contribution, I think is monumental to that score. Well, and I can't wait to talk about the score because I, I just, cause I just, I can't there, wait. There's a lot to talk about. It. Yeah. Um, and I, and I always take a second to talk about the Oscars cause I, it's, that's, my, well, it's we should also, jam. we should also address, uh, I know you're not going to side with me on this. Maybe, maybe Josh can be our, our voice of reason here. Mm. Here we go. I I'm sorry. I I don't think I don't think Steven Soderbergh should have gotten the Oscar. This this was Ridley's year, man. You know, it's I've never actually like in in the research I've done just on Oscar mm. trivia stuff. A, such a highly contested year for Best Director because Ang Lee won the DGA, and um uh Ridley. Did not win the BAFTA. That was that Soderbergh. I believe that. Uh, I believe that was Soderbergh as well. I don't have who won. I just know that. I oh just no, sorry. He... Ang Lee won the uh, the BAFTA as well. Okay, but so. like you know, it was definitely there was a lot of kind of who, who's going to win it, right? And it, I mean, even with Best Picture too, because I mean, you know, Traffic won four Oscars. Crouching Tiger won four. This won five. I mean, at that point in the night. It wouldn't have been surprising to hear Traffic win Best Picture, considering the four that it won. You know, three three pretty major with director, screenplay, and um, supporting actor. I mean, yeah, you had a great trifecta there between Crouching Tiger, Traffic, and, and Gladiator. It was really anybody's night. But yeah. in my mind, Ridley, Ridley brought back a dying genre That's and true. did it fucking spectacularly. I, I, and, yeah. and, and he is quoted as saying, I mean, it's a bit arrogant, but Ridley is one of those. I love hearing him talk. Because of he's got an air of arrogance because of what he's accomplished. I mean, before he made his first film, he had made something like two thousand commercials. I mean, he was a guy that was churning out directors 
left and right guys coming through his commercial school going on to make features and he said fuck it why haven't i done one and then he financed the duelists himself and then goes on to win not the not the um not the palm d'Or it can but he goes on to win the grand jury prize first film out yeah i it, it was his year man and he said i don't know what the fuck they thought i did on that film <laughs> which is is kind of fair yeah i i, I know this is an elementary thought and this will probably bounce off of the two of you, but I don't, I don't quite understand how a film can win Best Picture in a director. It seems like it, almost like a, almost like an NFL. You have like a quarter, you have the MVP, you know, and it's always the best quarterback or whatever. Yeah. In this case, the so much of what makes a film great, it seems like the the director is going to have the most impact on getting the best, the good performances out of the the actors, having everything all come together at once. Um, it seems like. Uh, I understand it, in a lot of cases it must just be to to acknowledge the work that another director did on another film. In this case, though, I, I do feel like it should have been Ridley Scott. Well, it's it's that you bring up a great point, which is the difference between best picture and best director. I think another point that, that, that I, I often think of is, well, what's, different, what's the difference between best director and best cinematography? Now, I know what the difference is, but I think that, I, you know, upon asking somebody who doesn't watch, who, who doesn't get in, into this, like as the, the nerdy level that we do, it's like, oh, this looks like this because of the director. Eh, no, that's not true. And, and we all know that. But um, but that's interesting because I, I often wonder, well, you know, why isn't it that, you know, it's the same five best pictures are also nominated for best director. I mean, mm-hmm. and this, and it's really, and, then, and this year's even more kind of crazy because I think, wasn't Soderbergh nominated twice? He was for Aaron Brockovich and Traffic, which in my, at my, I remember at the time thinking, okay, well that will split the vote. Yeah. And it, it has no other choice but to land on, it's either going to be Ridley or Ang Lee was, was my rationale because, because Soderbergh is nominated twice. Yeah. That's not to say, I, I think that Soderbergh didn't, not deserve it sure or, yeah or, I, I, I don't think I didn't deserve traffic. it I love but traffic. Yeah. I just I don't know I feel like the it, just from my perspective that Ridley had a more impressive performance as a director in that particular year than Soderbergh for, for well, and he didn't have a great 90s either mm-hmm. I mean he started the decade off incredibly strong with Thelma and Louise I mean great fucking movie mm-hmm. and then he goes on to make probably three of a run of three genuinely terrible films and i like i like i said maybe gi jane is better than i remember it because i haven't seen it in so long but he makes 1492 which is my least favorite film of his it is a fucking rush job he was in a a race against another director to make the columbus movie you know the 500 year anniversary 1992 of finding of columbus discovering america which the movie everybody was clamoring for of course so he makes (laughs) he makes that and then he casts like gerard depardieu as columbus and like sigourney weaver as queen isabella which is the some of the strangest fucking casting in history so he makes 1492, which is a great-looking film. He got Vangelis back to score the film as he did in Blade Runner, but it's just it's a fucking wasted effort. Then he makes White Squall, which we've already disparaged, and then I said G.I. Jane. So this, not only did he resurrect the sword and sandals epic film sort of subgenre, he also resurrected his career. Well, mm-hmm. and, and and I swear we'll move away from the Oscars here in a second, but, <laughs> but like... It's, it's you, worthy discussion. But you look at Gladiator, and... The cinematography. I remember at one point, because I, I, I know I'll mention this. The I, I called it a montage. That's probably not the right word, but the sequence of events that happens after he's essentially been captured, um, 
uh, and like Juba is like taking the thing off of his off of his face, and it's got these like the landscapes go crazy, and it's like he's floating over the rocks, and like that's like visually just amazing. It's great. And then step aside and talk about another movie that we've talked about on the show, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I think beautifully shot. I think the cinematography is gorgeous. I think it's I think it's a really beautiful film. Traffic in almost every sense is an ugly film. Oh, absolutely. And 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 but I I do love visually what they do. The well, light it's deliberately ugly. Oh yeah, no I know I know that. But like it is like it looks like you know he went to Target and got like a, an old DV camera and like I'm just gonna shoot on this. <laughs> um, and so it's just like it's. To go back to this like idea of director and picture, like how does that not sync up? I don't know, right? <laughs> because you can't say that this was like a cinematography kind of thing. Like, like clearly they were probably giving. I have to imagine it's like handling the cast, handling the story. I I, I don't know, but that's a it's a great unanswerable question. Right, that it's, yeah. That's that's fun to have these kind of conversations about mm. because I I don't know. Well, so I have often no idea. So often when you see one film, one director, and 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 some film win picture in my mind it, to me it almost feels like the vote was split and they couldn't as well we've got two and we really can't decide so let's give one i know it's not how it works right yeah. but that's kind of in my mind how i've rationalized it well we couldn't decide between a and we couldn't decide between traffic and gladiator so we're going to give one one and one the other yeah well that was uh, i'm going to sound like a little doofus here but that was 20 uh 2019 right with uh with parasite and uh, well, that's what we all thought was going to happen. Right. Oh. I I was convinced that was going to happen. I was convinced Bong Bong was going to win director, 1917 picture. And I actually thought the opposite. Oh, did you? I thought Parasite would win, but because of the, the, like the the visual focus of 1917, I thought it would go best director. Now, of course, I was thrilled because yeah. Parasite won won them all, and I was just fucking jazzed. I like 1917 is still the better I, movie. It is not. Um, <laughs> it totally is. It is but not that's okay. at all. No, it's fine. It's fine. You, you're just you're you're ignorant. Wow. <laughs> Here, it was you, the first word that do you came want that to knife play. back. <laughs> no, you can keep it there. I'm sure I'll use it later. It's fine. <laughs> Jesus, derailed. Okay. Okay. All right. Let's go through the rest of the accolades. So yes, uh, the Golden Globes it won Best Picture and Score. It lost Director, Actor, and Supporting Actor. The BAFTAs it won the Audience Award, Best Film, Cinematography, Production Design, and Editing. It lost a bunch. I'm not there. Are too many. It was, it was the BAFTAs love this movie. Um, but here we got to stop. Do oh you know, shit. Do you know what it lost visual effects to at the BAFTAs? Uh, Two thousand. Hollow Man. No fucking okay. Perfect Storm. Oh, I, that I, movie. I haven't seen it. I've watched that movie within the last two years. Does not fucking hold up <laughs> at all, as compared to this, which clearly fucking does. I know I mentioned a while ago. If you want to watch a better Mark Wahlberg at sea movie, watch Deepwater Horizon. It's definitely on my radar. I'm excited to do that. Um, at the SAGs, uh, it was nominated for Best Ensemble and Actor and Supporting Actor. Uh, the National Board of Review put it in its top 10. Gave Best uh, Supporting Actor to Walking Phoenix. Also won Best Production Design. The AFI said it was the film of the year. It picked up a DGA nom and a PGA win. Um, I have it at number 42 on the IMDb Top 250. That's correct. On either side, we have 1960s Psycho and City Lights, the uh, Charlie Chaplin film. Good company. Good company. Yeah, also, so. sidebar really quick. We have not done a Chaplin on this show yet. That is very high up my list <laughs> okay. for season three. Just, just, just very, putting it out very, there. Because we did Buster Keaton. Yes, it's time. Did. It's definitely time to do. And we, we also did Marx Brothers. Yeah. So we got it. Chaplin's gotta, in there a lot. Too, he is. So, so yeah. definitely. Um, uh, and my vote is Modern Times. But we can oh, deal with yeah, that later. Yeah, that's yeah. Fine. Um, Rotten Tomatoes. It has a 77% 
critical and Not an 87 percent audience, which is going to lead right into we have to talk about Roger Ebert's oh, we fucking do. two star review. I'm so glad Josh is here because there's a sentence in there that we, with his expertise, we need to deal with. But go okay. ahead. So I'm gonna. Re- I have a, a paragraph that I'm gonna pull out, and if you have more, please, you know, fill in, fill in the blanks. Yeah. A foolish choice in art direction casts a, pa- a pall over Ridley Scott's Gladiator that no swordplay can cut through. The film looks muddy, fuzzy, and indistinct. Its colors are mud tones at the drab end of the palette, and it seems to have been filmed on grim and overcast days. This darkness and a lack of detail in the long shots help obscure shabby special effects. The Colosseum in Rome looks like a model from a computer game. And the characters bring no cheer. They're bitter, vengeful, depressed. By the end of this long film, I would have traded any given gladiatorial victory for just one shot of blue skies. There are blue skies in the hero's dreams of long ago happiness, but that proves the point. The story... (laughs) Sorry, I laughed before I could say the last line. The storyline is Rocky on Downers. I I really don't mean to speak ill of the dead, but Roger Ebert... You know, you can be wrong every once in a while. This is the montage right here I'm talking about. Uh, so, yeah. for Look at for this. Our, this is not... This is gorgeous. Yeah. So, so for our listeners, we do... This is the first time we've ever done this because we're recording this all together in, in my home. We have the film on in the background, and this is in stunning 4K. I mean, now, obviously, I mean, they didn't have 4K back in 2000. <laughs> So we, we have the benefit of, of that technology now, but this film looks stunningly beautiful. Yeah, it couldn't be more off base in my opinion. And well, my, my, my first thought when I read that was, did he only watch up until the point where he gets free when he's fighting in the snow and then give up? Because, yeah, the, all that stuff, when they're, they're in the woods, it's darker, it's snowing, it's not bright, it's not Morocco or wherever the hell they film this. Like, it's, you know what I mean? Like, it's... It's drab because of where they are. Yeah. There's a whole rest of the movie where it doesn't look like that. Yeah, I mean, we're looking at it right now. They are in Morocco. I see blue moment. sky right there. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> there it is. I'm so glad that happened at this moment. I just, I don't know. Like, I and I obviously, I respect his opinion. I usually go to Roger Ebert because he's he's most known. People know him. Mm-hmm. He had a, he, you know, how many critics got a fucking television show? But I just, I, this is I just plain wrong. So there are other, other, another couple of sentences I want to bring up just to prove how wrong he is. Please and then do. I want to come back to a point yes. with Josh here that was in the, uh, in the first paragraph that you read there. He says, Glad-, he goes on to say, Gladiator lacks joy. It employs depression as a substitute for personality. I don't know what the fuck that means. And believes that the characters, believes that if the characters are bitter and morose enough, we won't notice how dull they are. Gladiator is being hailed by those with short memories as the equal of Spartacus and Ben-Hur. This is more like Spartacus light or dark. It's only, nece- it's only necessary to think back a few months to Julie Taymor's Titus for a film set in ancient Rome that, immeasurably, that is immeasurably better to look at. The visual accomplishment of Titus shames Gladiator, and its story is a whole heck of a lot better than the Gladiator screenplay, even if Shakespeare didn't make his Titus the only undefeated champion in Roman history. Now, I don't know if either of you have seen Titus. I scoured high and low for this thing has been out of print for the better part of a decade. That was a half-price book bundle purchase for me. Um, I have seen it. 
It's long as hell. It's right? long. It's long. And here's the thing: Titus Andronicus. Again, I'm gonna. I'll be a nerd for a second. Is well, it's not, like it's like the least done Shakespeare play, right? No, it's like, it, no, it's, it's like not up there. It's well, it's the gore is a reason why people want to do it. Oh, it's right. very. It's his most violent play. Yeah, for sure. Um, but it's also one of his shortest plays. It's not that long. Um, Julie Taymor. Um, I think the word to associate with her on almost anything she does is excess. Now, that's not a bad thing. That's just her thing. I mean, how um, good is, we talked about this, how good is Across the Universe? I, I, I like, you like it more than I do. Yeah, I do, but it's um, still gorgeous. Yeah, no, and that that's her thing. Like, that, like the, the visual, like, she's the one who fucking did Spider-Man the musical. Like, that was, that was her thing. So, the visuals and the, like, it's not just, like, the production design and the costume design. Everything about Titus is, like, feast your eyes on this. And it's a great Tony Hopkins performance from what I've read, right? Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's good. It's good. But like I don't again, it's it's weird to have the movie playing right now. Um I don't know what he's talking about. Like I I told Melissa cuz Melissa watched this with me. She doesn't always watch him, but she did this and at the beginning I said I think you'll be pleased to know this one um that's costume design cuz she's a she's a costume mm-hmm. designer. And she's watching the movie and she's like, "Yeah. It's it's gorgeous." And so I mean it's a movie about a guy who basically becomes a slave as a gladiator. Like, of course there are going to be like, I, we're, we're kind of break. We're kind of, I don't know. I, I don't want to skip over your point. And I know we're bridging into kind of what the movie is about. His wife and son are murdered. He finds their burnt corpses hanging in front of his house. Like kind of like with the elephant man in a way, like Roger Ebert, what movie were you wanting to watch? Like it, you have like you can't change the plot of the movie, and I and that's maybe that's his thing. Like he just didn't like it. Like I, and maybe it's just this is this is a bias I was gonna get into later. But like ninety eight through like two thousand and two, when I was like really in my young mind getting into film, most of my, a lot of my favorite films come from those four years. That's mm-hmm. just so like Gladiator, like fuck Spartacus, yes. fuck Ben Hur. Well, mm-hmm. this is this is like this is my movie. Easy on the fuck Ben Hur. Fuck Ben Hur. But yeah, Spartacus. Spartacus <laughs> is fuck Ben Hur. Right, right in Charlton Heston's ass. Just well, fuck him. Yeah, well, yeah, right fuck, there. Fuck Charlton Heston. But let's I, let's fuck, go a little easy nah, on, fuck on the fuck. But fuck Spartacus. It is honestly probably my least favorite Stanley Kubrick film because it's not a Kubrick film. I, well, I, he was I, a director I, for hire on that, and that film is far more drab than this. And also, while we're at fucking people, oh hello, Kirk Douglas said that this film is nowhere near as noble as Spartacus, which he's a rapist, so I don't give a shit about his opinion. Fuck him. Well, but the the thing about, like, Spartacus is just a really long morality tale. Like, oh, absolutely. Like, Sparta, like I, I've only seen it the once, and it left very little impression on me, but the only thing I know about Spartacus is that I am Spartacus. I am Spartacus. Like, oh, we're, we were building to this. Look at that. That's great. And Josh will appreciate <laughs> this. They do it so much better in Life of Brian. The, the parody in Life of Brian is so much better than anything in Spartacus. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I just, I, I, I don't know. I, I usually really respect, even if I disagree his opinion, but I just, I just plain wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I get nothing more. So while we're, while we're talking about biases and his bias towards Spartacus, he also had a bias against video games. Now, Josh mm. is, is here because he's not only a big Russell Crowe fan, he's also got some podcast experience. You had your show with Jeffers and your fiance Amy. You had yeah. third-player games. You guys got up to 90 episodes right. talking about video game news, and you guys did a whole thing on, like, retro video games. Now, That's right. Roger Ebert's bias extended to that, and I love 
that he brings that up in this. He says the Colosseum looks like a model from a computer game. Any chance he got, he would rag on video games as a media. And I just want to deal with this subtangent really quick. He said video games can never be art. So I want your gut reaction to that, Josh. Uh well, I don't want to give my gut reaction because I do have a lot of respect for the dead. Um, I, I, uh, but it is it is incredibly frustrating because it's a it's kind of a it's kind of a a battle that you have to fight that uh, that uh, that video games are it, it's a childish thing because most people um, discovered them when they were kids or for a lot of us we kind of grew up with these things. Yeah, there's a but stigma around them. Exactly that, and but they don't realize just how much you know. There's they they think that it's Call of Duty and it's Madden and it's you know NBA 2K and and stuff like that. And there's there's so much out there that that most you know 90% of the population who don't pay attention aren't going to notice. Um, that kind of bias is extremely frustrating. I actually think the Coliseum looks pretty damn good for its time. Uh, you know, just a point on that. Yeah, but, no, it's, um, it still holds up. Yeah, exactly. But the idea that it can't be art. Just because a lot of the money doesn't go towards that, it's just like film. Like a lot of the money doesn't go to artistic films. It isn't a lot of money isn't raked in from artistic films. It's the same exact way with video games. A lot of the money gets raked in from the Call of Duties and those things. But you have a lot of beautiful pieces of art, I'll say, um, from a lot of the smaller studios that come like out. Like one that jumps to mind immediately is Limbo. Limbo, Limbo is yeah. a, a gorgeous piece mm-hmm. of, of gaming. Journey is a game called Journey. Just for the for those listening that are looking for recommendations that to me is the most beautiful one of the most beautiful um pieces of digital art you know especially in motion that that i've seen and that was a video game so, so his the, the article that he published where he called video games he said that video games can never be art came mm-hmm. out around the same time as shadow of the colossus mm-hmm. and that was Which, the one that people championed is that you are more wrong than you than yeah. you could possibly know you have to give him some grace that there's no way that he knows about those kinds of Things. Right, right. But come on, he's a don't he's be a so ignorant. And he's you know was trying to. I don't want to say getting clicks is a different time. But. Well, I just wonder how antiquated that that view is. I mean, I, the I feel like the when that argument really started was like Mortal Kombat, and I'm going yeah. way back. But yeah. like I remember, I remember having Mortal Kombat on super, my Super NES, and yeah, there's there's no I, I would say artistic value to that game. It's in a way, it's it's pretty deplorable. Right. But like to just, I feel like it's just like pigeonholing everything into mm. that, like that. That's why it's not good. Right. Like, right. well, sure, that sucks. But mm. I mean, you're just ignoring the the like the rest of it, which is a lot. Well, he's he reviewed plenty of shit films in his time. Is he gonna say that? Oh, just because this film was garbage, that means that all film can't be art. You can't paint in a in brush strokes. I just that I just broad. Would like to also rec- just point out that Roger Ebert gave a three and a half star review to the Garfield sequel that we covered on Below Freezing. That's that's correct. So <laughs> so is that for those hunting home? That's two stars for Gladiator and three, <laughs> three and a half for Garfield, Garfield. A Tale of Two Kitties. <laughs> We're not even talking about the first Garfield, <laughs> oh. which which he loved. I think he had four stars too. Oh my god. <laughs> so Garfield is art, of course. Yes, but, indeed, okay. indeed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Glad- Garfield is art, but Gladiator is not. Right. <laughs> so I mean, take uh, Roger Ebert. We're not shitting on Roger Ebert's legacy. It's just uh, when he was wrong, he yeah. was very wrong. <laughs> he would right. later. He would later partially recant that statement in about mm-hmm. 2010, where he said, "Well, okay, maybe video games can be art, but we are when you we're at the sort of cave painting end of that." Yeah. He was. I think he was very short sighted in yeah. that view, saying, "We're we're at the chicken scratch end." We're not at the system. We're no nobody living in the world in 2010 will ever see the Sistine Chapel end of it, mm-hmm. which 
again, I think he's very wrong. I think he was very short-sighted in that view. Yeah. He's, he's brilliant, uh, right, more times than not. So you have to, in order for us to feel good about ourselves, we have to pick at the things that he, the one, one in a hundred times where he said something ridiculous yeah. to make ourselves And I, I highly recommend the the documentary about him, yeah. Life Itself. It's it's really good. Yeah. It's, it's a good I documentary. might be watching that for our documentary episode next week. Hey, look, there you go. Um, so, I mean, if you haven't seen Gladiator, let me, I'm just, I'm just going to like try to steamroll through what, so uh, Russell Crowe plays Maximus. He is a Roman general. Um, he, he opens up the movie leading uh, the Romans to victory and um, Marcus Aurelius, the, the emperor, uh, wants to make him the next emperor of Rome and not his son, uh, which is played by Joaquin Phoenix, Commodus. Um, before Russell Crowe decides, uh, he tells Commodus, no, you're not going to be emperor. And Commodus kills him, thus sort of just by default becoming the next emperor. Um, Russell Crowe says, uh, it doesn't say this, but basically he's like, fuck you, I'm not going to serve you. And because of that... Um, Commodus is like, nope, I'm gonna kill you, except for, <laughs> except for Russell Crowe is a fucking badass and like kills six people. It's wonderful, but uh, uh, he tries to get home. His wife and son uh, are murdered, and I think he just, you know, in in in, in grief, uh, passes out, and he gets sort of uh, taken into slavery as a gladiator, and basically fights his way all the way into Rome, where Commodus is doing 150 days of games, and eventually reveals himself to Commodus, and basically uh, tries to fight for his freedom i dig it cool great now Uh, this is the part of the show where i ask oh do you guys like lists i i love lists (laughs) i love lists i love lamp i I love lamp i love lamp (laughs) are you just saying you love lamp or do you actually love i love lamp (laughs) i love lamp so i'm gonna save one of the lists for later on in the show because we'll be doing our russell crowe mount rushmore indeed so that'll sort of lead us into that nicely and maybe have some influence on how our mount rushmores go but i will start uh i will do one list now which is a i've been trying to do sort of alternative lists obviously uh last week i had the uh films with the most uses of the word fuck indeed so i remember i think one of my favorite alternative lists of yours as i'm remembering was terry gilliam's favorite animated films of all time well and it led to us singing what a weird list that was. I, I, I kind of, I, I really was happy when I found that. And it led to us, you know, you know, singing Uncle Fucker, singing Uncle Fucker right. testing out our singing chops again. You know, one day we'll get an acapella group going, but you know, we're not quite there yet. Yep. Uh, so I have another alternative list. This is, uh, there's a, uh, uh, an online uh, sort of magazine radio station thing in Britain, Heart U, uh, heart.co.uk. They have a list. Of uh, I just have the top ten, but they have a list of the twenty films that make men cry. Oh, so here we go. Here's I'm a, here an alternative go. list. Here's the top ten we'll, films according we, to Heart.com. We all have to admit if, if we've cried. Oh, I, because of sure. because of these movies. I, I'll cry at the end of this movie right now. Okay. Uh, here we go. So at number ten, uh, an episode that we've done, Stand by Me. Can't say I cried. I did it, not. I I cried the first time I saw that movie. The, it, and it's obviously it's the. Uh, uh, um, River Phoenix, you know, talking the about the, the yeah, could be a real writer, Gordy. Well, no, not that. No, that that one. Okay. No, the uh, you know the 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 teacher that you know framed him oh, for stealing like that whole moment. That's the whole moment. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Good stuff. Uh, number nine, another episode we've done. It's a wonderful life. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. If you if you haven't cried during yeah. that, you're kind of soulless. <laughs> uh, at number eight, again, I will right now every time I cry because it's not your fault. Oh. It's not your oh. fault. Uh, yeah. Goodwill Hunting yeah. Yeah. is right there at number eight. That is a... Fuck, that movie's so good. 
Uh, number seven is a Pixar film, but probably not the one you're thinking of. It's Wally. No. Yeah, Wally. I don't know that it cried. It did. It did. It, uh, that one is very near and dear to me. Yeah. Um, and I do get, I guess, a little emotional well up inside. Um, but I'm kind of dead on the inside, so it takes a lot <laughs> to really kind of crack that. This was right on the edge, so I guess I give it a, a half cry. Well, there's a, there's another Pixar film on the list on this list all the way down at number twenty is Toy Story three, which I honestly I think they should be reversed. I I actually did I I actually did. Tear, tear up a bit until at the end of Toy Story three. Oh, you know, but, but not. But I didn't cry when they're in the trash compactor. I, no, I, no, it's it's the end. Yeah, where he it, gives I the was toys. like, oh mm. shit, he's really saying bye. Yeah, when he <laughs> gives the toys to the little girl. Yeah, yeah of course, I teared up. Uh, number six is a movie that just irritates the ever loving fuck out of me. Is Million Dollar Baby? Yeah. Yeah. You've seen Million Dollar Baby, right? Oh now. yeah, the uh, Clint Eastwood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, did yeah. That did that movie that movie did literally nothing for me. It did something for me. I I, I didn't cry. It made yeah. me sad. I mean, I was into it. I I do yeah. like. I have a soft spot for Clint. Eastwood. Talk about but, but, sorry. It's a good. Did, it's a good talk Morgan about Freeman. depressing movies yeah. though. Yeah, yeah. Jesus I, think, I think that's the problem. Christ. Is that the whole last like what like thirty minutes is just like you're just upset the whole last thirty minutes. So. Yeah, it's I don't know if there was any one moment that I really like. It all came to a head for me. Yeah, but. that's a good point. Uh, number five movie I haven't seen Marley and Me. Oh no, I haven't seen it. Yeah. You haven't seen it. I, 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 this m- might be the only movie that I've seen that neither of you have seen. Yeah. I've seen it multiple times, <laughs> not on purpose, but no. <laughs> I love the little tag of not on purpose. Is no, this is this an Amy movie? No, I don't no? Even think. Jeez, no. Wow. I guess I just have this secret. Am I the only one that's seen yeah. this movie? I, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it's about, but I haven't yeah. seen it. The only yeah. one, the only person in this state, probably. I think so. <laughs> no, but no, I did not cry this one. Uh, number four is Dead Poet Society. No. I haven't seen that one, actually. I'm ashamed to admit. That's oh, just, hey, yeah. man, it's all right. Yeah. I, I feel like there's two moments where you could, and I, nah. Yeah. I didn't. I mean, it, it's I, fine. I felt myself like like I wanted to, but it's all it's all, it's too saccharine. This it's is the Robin Williams. Yeah, Robin Williams, right. the, uh, yeah. oh, Captain, my, my oh, Captain, yeah, right. where they all stand on their desks at the end. Mm-hmm. Was it Robert Shaw and Leonard kills himself in it? Yes. Yeah. Ethan, yeah. it was an early role for Ethan mm-hmm. Hawke. Ethan Hawke is fucking great in it. Mm-hmm. Number three makes no sense to me, but it, it feels like a, a very nostalgic sort of choice. It's Bambi. I don't know. I've, I actually, I've, I saw this movie when I was young. I saw it at an appropriate age, but I can't yeah. say that I actually like this movie. I think nearly as much as maybe it deserves or maybe as yeah. others, but I'll go with it. I never got attached to this one. Yeah. yeah, it didn't leave much of an impression on me. Yeah. My, my grandmother loves it and, and she can remember seeing it. Yeah. Um, number two is Gladiator. That's why we're here. No, I didn't cry. You don't cry at the end of no. Gladiator? I do. I did. Actually, yes. And, you did. And what the weird thing is I've seen this movie countless times and it's only the last couple times I saw it. Uh, that I actually which it's is that, weird because I know what's coming and but I guess I was just really into it's it. It's those but. Lisa Gerard vocals and now we are free. It's which we'll talk about I'm sure yeah. later on. But <laughs> that particular moment um, never used to get me. But yeah, yeah I, I have to it's, admit yes. it's tough, man. Yeah. Uh, number one, this is so fucking weird to me. Uh, Schindler's List is on the list, but it's much further down. That would have been my number one because mm-hmm. the moment where he says, you know, they give him the ring with whoever saves one life saves the world, it's, uh, saves the world entire. Yeah. Quote from the Talmud. And he says, with this, I could have gotten one more, two more. That fucking devastates me. Mm-hmm. So Schindler's List is not number one. But Jerry Maguire is. Number one. Jerry Maguire is number, according to this this uh, this website in the in the UK, Jerry Maguire is the number one movie that will make men cry. You know, it's funny. I don't know I, about that. I don't think I cried. I know 
I know for me, and I don't even want to give this, I don't even want to attribute it to the movie, but I know when Secret Garden starts to play, just because I, I like that song, I get a little like emotional, but I can't say it's because of what's happening in the movie. It's because of spring. It's because of the boss. Yeah. 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 Well, she, she'd, be, she'd be happy maybe, but, but you'd feel better. Yeah. <laughs> nice. I just I rewatched High Fidelity for the first time in a long time the other day. Love it. So there we go. That's an alternative list according to heart.co.uk, movies that make men cry. So you know what? I how about we just start with this? My first note is the score is so good. <laughs> so we've we've tiptoed around the score a little bit. So it's the score that made Hans Zimmer. I don't think there's really any debates there. I mean, he had gotten some some publicity. What was it a year or two years before with the Prince of Prince of Egypt? That sort of helped propel him. But this this is the one. Mm-hmm. Even right? the Prince of Egypt wasn't even uh, the the notoriety as far as the soundtrack goes is for the the. The kind of pop hits, so yeah. to speak. Yeah, you know, the, not, vo- not the vocal pop, but yeah, yeah, the actual like songs itself. You know, like a like, almost like a Disney movie. But and the one word I kept writing down was just how eclectic it was. Like it's yeah, all yeah. over the place, yeah. and and I feel like normally that would bug me, but it doesn't in this. I it really, you know, I, I it, like kind of like the the editing in a way. The editing should almost go unnoticed or be so obvious that it's part of the storytelling. And for right. me, it's like the score is just another character. Mm-hmm. It it really does help us know where we are. And I think I think part of part of why it works in my opinion is that because they they hit so many different locations and so many different moods. Um we'll talk maybe we'll talk a little bit about it, but like that Ridley really loved to use heavy on the covey fil- color filters in this because you're really trying to show, you know, like the classic, like it's yellow, you're in Mexico kind of deal. But but this place has so many different um, environments or whatever. And I think that's part of why what makes the the score, like the fact that you got away with it being so varied. And in, in this case, it doesn't, it doesn't, it never feels weird to me. You know, like if you listen to it from start to finish, it's like all over the place. Yeah. But, um, but really works, especially when you're, you know, well, emotionally, it, it hits all the right beats for me. It's haunting when it needs to be haunting. It's it's filled with revelry when it needs to. It's mm-hmm. got that driving, those driving horns mm-hmm. that Hans Zimmer is so fond of. Um, it, it's got the that emotional undercurrent, as I've mentioned, with Lisa Gerard's uh, vocals, especially towards the end. It's just it hits, it hits me in all the right places in the way that something by Danny Elfman or John Williams, those guys that lean on the same kinds of, of tropes themes that and, are yeah. so much a part of their career. And of course, Hans Zimmer would go on to repeat himself quite heavily, I think, after this. If you if you look at the score for the Pirates of the Caribbean films, now I know he didn't compose the, the score for the first one, though he was a, a soundtrack supervisor on that, and he did go on to score uh, some of the later ones. I mean, this beat for beat, the theme to Pirates is taken straight out of this. I, yeah, I'm not, I won't disagree with you. I was I, I was thinking that when I was oh, watching it, I was like, this is, this feels. And it's also got a flavor of a film that he did a few years before, The Rock. Mm-hmm. I, f- I feel a little bit of The Rock in this. Right. I don't know, Adam, if that rings true with you or not. It's been a hot minute since I've seen and, The Rock. Oh, okay, The Rock is like a once a year guilty pleasure <laughs> for me. I I fucking adore that film. That's not my bay of choice though. Your bay of choice is Armageddon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, my bay of choice is very much The Rock. I like The Rock. Just the rock is fucking great. Um, so can I? Can I? I, I just I want to I want to do something now. I just I, I I have to do something now. So um, I I might have mentioned this. I'm not sure if I mentioned it on mic or not. But like half of my notes were just lines from this movie 
that I really like. <laughs> now, um, <laughs> so I, I've, we've mentioned this before. I'm an, I'm an actor. Now, I do not claim to be good at impressions. And what you hear now may not be a good one. Um, I only ever do like two impressions from film. One is from The Patriot. And it's a Tom Wilkinson line where he goes, damn him, damn that man. And it's one of my like favorite lines ever. Just ever. I love saying it. But so so here it is. I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best right now. I wrote it down because I gotta I gotta get it word perfect. Do you want me to lead you in? Sure. My name is Gladiator. How dare you turn your back to me? Slave, you will remove your helmet and tell me your name. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix, Felix Legions. Loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius. Father to a murdered son. Husband to a murdered wife. And I will have my vengeance. In this life or the next. Nice. I give you a Garfield three and a half. And Ian, I give you a Gladiator two stars. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, he gets, just gets so gravelly at the end there. Oh, he and does. I, w- I will have my vengeance. In this life or the next, <laughs> he he does get ragged on quite a bit for his English oh, accent. I was no, gonna no. I was gonna ask how you felt he did. I mean, well, I, he's worse in Robin Hood. Yeah, his accent in Robin Hood is fucking all. At first he's northern, then he's southern, then he's northern again, then he's might as well be Welsh. That I have no G- fucking idea. That GQ interview they show the that, that just a short clip from Robin Hood. Like like oh man, what are you doing? Yeah, that's that's not good. What is this movie? I forgot. I saw that. Marion, I've, I've come to rescue you. Oh my god. Robin Hood. Yeah, I saw yeah. The theaters too. Woof. Again, the director's cut is better. Fine. Mm-hmm. Whatever. No, it genuinely is. From like shit to okay, is that what we're talking about? Yes. Or? Okay, great. <laughs> just, just checking. Well, I say shit to marginally enjoyable. Okay, cool. Gotcha. Um, sorry, I feel like I have just steamrolled part of this, so I want to. No, no, I no, just, no, that's good. Like... No, it's good. I, well, it's good. It leads us into we can talk about favorite lines. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you want to lead mine's us. A, mine's a, I guess, a little bit sarcastic or poking fun at it, but uh, what is it? Uh, Cicero. Uh, what does he say? Uh, sometimes I do, sometimes I do what I want to do. Other times I do what I must, and that supposedly just uh, that comforts Maximus. I yeah, guess yeah, for yeah. some weird reason yeah, he yeah. says, uh, uh, "Do you always feel you need to do your duty?" And he just responds with, "Sometimes I do what I have to do. Other times I do what I must." And he's like, "Oh, thank you for your wisdom, Cicero. <laughs> now I know what I must do." <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like Tommy Flanagan was kind of hard done by in this movie. There's not an, there's not enough Tommy Flanagan. In I was it. gonna I, say, man, like. I don't think I know anybody in my life as dedicated to somebody as, as Cicero is to Maximus. Like, he's just like, dude, it's you. Oh, shit, man. I, he is, like, as loyal as anybody. That's that's impressive. We all need a Cicero in our lives. We really do. My actual favorite, though, is the Proximo going on. Uh, we are all but ashes and dust. Ah, ashes yeah. and dust. Ashes and dust. Yeah. We actually just passed because we we have the film on. One of my favorite moments is where he's talking to him about Marcus Aurelius giving him his freedom. And you knew Marcus Aurelius. I didn't say I knew him. I said he touched me on the shoulder. <laughs> I, I love that. And his speech about win the crowd, win yeah. your freedom. Like Proximo in that scene, he is so dedicated to this life that he was living. Obviously, he was born a slave. He was a gladiator as well. He won his freedom, and now this is all he knows. And he he knows what he's doing is wrong. He is a great, sort of, slightly underdeveloped and and underwhelming, not because of Oliver Reed's performance, because it was a great, 
fucking final performance. BAFTA's nominated him. BAFTA did nominate him. Um, but there's there's a there's a conflict in him, which I love so very, very much. Like I said, he knows he's doing wrong, but this is all he knows. And he's he's trying to give these men sort of the best life that they can expect to have. And he's he's pining for his glory days. And which is such a shame that that Oliver Reed died midway through production because the the original ending of the film was rewritten. It was supposed to be Commodus forcing uh, Maximus to fight Proximo. And of course, Proximo winning because they were still going to do the thing where they were going to stab Maximus in the side so he had a disadvantage. And then uh, it was going to be Proximo instead of Juba that buries uh, the two totems of his wife and son in the sand of the Colosseum, which I think is a is a slightly more poignant ending. I, mean, I agree. But, you know, circumstance being what it was, Oliver Reed, to give a brief little bit of history on him, he made his name in the Hammer films, and he was Carol Reed's nephew. They went, of course, on to make uh, the Oliver musical together, film the musical that won Best Picture. Uh, but he... Uh, he is in a group of great British actors who were probably known more for their drinking than they are for some of their performances. <laughs> Guys like Richard Burton, Richard Harris, who was also in this film, one of his final performances. Um, uh, the guy being Peter O'Toole. Peter O'Toole and Oliver Reed were actually, they were very good friends, uh, as well as Richard Harris as well. Um, Oliver Reed died while they were making the film in Malta. The film was shot pretty much almost in sequence, so they were quite close to the end of production. Uh, they only had, like I said, that final fight, burying the figures. They had the uh, gladi- the, the, the escape where they're trying to get Maximus out the back. They had all that still to shoot, and which led to one of the most expensive digital effects at the time, which was doing a very early form of digital face replacement. It actually, this, so this bumped the film's budget up from $100 million to $103 million. Uh, I find it. I find it really... A great thing that Ridley did is they were they were insured. It would have cost them another twenty five million to reshoot the film with with another actor playing Proximo. But he was Ridley was dedicated to to Oliver Reed and said no, we'll find another way to do this. Uh, so he died in Malta, um, drinking at a bar, and he was trying to one up some British sailors who were in port for the week, uh, challenging them to drinking contests, arm wrestling contests. Apparently, he dropped dead there in the bar. Um, David Franzoni actually came out and said, I kept the bar tab. And David Hemmings, who was kind of Oliver Reed's, he was a good friend of his as well, and kind of his guardian on set, making sure that he only drank on the weekends. That was his kind of deal with Ridley. That was his deal with the insurance guys. Look, you know, I won't drink on the weekdays, but after 5 p.m. is my time. The weekends are my time. Which is fair. But, I mean, he, 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 I think he went out the way he wanted to. You know, he, he died as he lived, I think we can say. And uh, I think the world is a sadder place for it. But if you're going to go out on any one performance, this is a fucking hell of a performance to go out on. He fucking, I think he swings for the fucking fences on this one. I, agree. I don't know if you guys. I don't yeah, know, I agree completely. Oh, I, I actually yeah. had no idea, just real quick, Adam, I had no idea at all that the uh, the ending we see in the final release was actually an alternate ending, so to speak. Oh, you yeah, know, they had to get they had to get William Nicholson on a plane that day. No, you've got to yeah. be here to rewrite this thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, he flew back. He basically landed and yeah. flew back. That's anyway, crazy. David David Hemming said that he it was a tremendously emotional day, and all he could say to Ridley was, "I'm sorry, old boy. I did my best." Yeah. Two things, uh, r- really quick. Um, just this idea of of being flexible and and like that people. 
that like it takes a it takes a village to do this and just the 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 way that they were able to adapt and and cre- still create a feasible and workable ending not 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 even like a like a, oh this might work but like a real like it still works the ending is still there you know his fight with Commodus is still pretty satisfying to, to see that at the end even though i think they had a better ending planned his death still works in the movie where the soldiers come up behind him he's holding the wooden sword that Marcus Aurelius gave him and they you know stab him in the back they stab him to death i think so i think that gives gives more weight to his decision to back maxim uh to to back really all of them yeah. all of the uh, all of the slavers all the gladiators and unleash them and, and choose that rather than you know living really he, it, the way it plays out it it implies that he knew what his fate was going to be he went up to his chamber and he was just waiting for them and uh took a noble death so to speak doing what he thought was the right thing because well, originally he's reluctant to mm-hmm. let maximus right. go and to to be a part of this coup because you know maximus makes him money right. makes him rich why mm-hmm. would he do this and he's back he's back at the coliseum yeah where he's longed to be for yeah, exactly this years. is all he's wanted you know marcus mm-hmm. the real marcus aurelius never banned the games we oh, can God. get the way yeah. the way oliver reed touches the statue is like the, the coliseum and it's just like yeah. he's the, the reverence yes. he gives the space Great. that mm-hmm. was exactly the word i was going to use after pretending like i never said i knew him you know <laughs> yeah you know? but he still is like, but the fact that that Maximus then turns to him and to get him to be on his side, he says, mm-hmm. Commodus killed the man that set you free. Yeah. I mean, would that not... That seems to have been the turning point. Yeah, would that not have, have you know, revitalized you and want mm-hmm. you to be a part of this? For me, I, it, fu- it fucking works yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Oh, yeah. I agree. No, and that's... And that's I, I can imagine how frustrating it was as an actor to hear, like, you know, Ridley Scott, sword and sandal, big budget cool and then you get the script and it's like what the fuck is this how are we gonna how is this gonna get made well it was also the first time that oliver reed had read in and they i think they made him read twice for it which was he illiterate (laughs) 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 see that's why he learned to read (laughs) you know he learned to read for this part (laughs) wow (laughs) after being in film since the early 60s No, they they made him audition, which is oh, something yeah. he hadn't done in decades. He's one of those where you just you call him up to exactly. To and I have part. a I have a great quote. So he worked with uh, there were a couple of film film directors that he worked with quite a bit. One of them was Ken Russell. I talked about him a little bit with our when I recommended Women in Love. But he also worked with a guy named Michael Winner quite a few times who directed the original uh, Death Wish. Uh, he said, Oliver, don't fuck with me. You're not a fucking star. You're out of work, and you're not me. You can't be as drunk as people think you are, so go to Ridley and read. End of story, Oliver. And if he wants you to read twice, you fucking read twice. <laughs> it worked out. I, 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 I'll say that, like, in my limited experience, just, just like, and mostly do it's doing theater, like, it's so flattering just to, like, not have to audition, to be, to be asked to read for a part. Like, you know, we, like, to, you know, we, we're, we're considering for this part. We don't want you to come read for it. Like, I don't have to, like, do a cold audition. You, you want me to read for a part? Please. And thank you. Yeah. Um, Ian just pointed out um, Maximus's helmet. Which is another one of the big... We can... I have a whole list of historical inaccuracies. Thank you. If you, I, if you no, want no, to just kind no, of touch on it. I don't know that I, I want to. I did... The, the, so the movie is full of historical inaccuracies and, and anachronistic set pieces and costumes and things. And we mentioned this a little bit in um, uh, when we talked about the Elephant Man, about the fact that John Merrick's life wasn't as bad as it made it seem, and characters were completely rewritten to make it more theatrical, to make it more of a compelling story. Do either of you give a shit that this is not historically accurate? Absolutely not. No, not. I mean, it, I I think if you, I don't think 
let me back up a little bit. <laughs> I think if you're going into this for a history lesson, um, th- I mean, then you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I guess. Yes, uh, it's a movie. No, you can be. It's blood, a drama. Man. Just do it. Uh, no, I, it doesn't. It doesn't bother me one bit. I think it's. I, I do get. I do get a little fussed if they go like, if they go crazy town while trying to make it seem kind of somewhat, you know, grounded in reality. Yeah, something like this. Um, I think you know even. You know, twelve-year-old me watching this movie for the first time or whenever that was, uh, uh, it, it doesn't bother me at all. I guess is what well, I'm there, trying to say. There's enough of a of a of an accurate historical flavor to it. The real Commodus did really fight in the arena, even mm-hmm. though they were staged fights. He was killed by not a gladiator, but he was killed by a wrestler mm-hmm. named Narcissus, who was sort of the inspiration and the original name in the script for Maximus was Narcissus. Yeah. I mean, there's enough of the flavor. To, to get you there, it's the same. I don't, if you were to say, oh, I love Inglorious Bastards, but I hate Gladiator for its historical inaccuracies, then you're, you're kind of at odds with yourself there. I think this is, without them coming out and saying, oh, we're doing his, uh, a historical rewrite, which is clearly what Tarantino was doing, that's, that's also kind of what they were doing, but not being as sort of obvious and on the nose about it. Well, I just, I think it's, I, I know a more recent example that I know, I, a lot of people have seen it and it's sort of you know highly praises is, is the social network and people thinking like oh this is this is how facebook was founded this you know like this is true it's like, no this is based off of a novel mm. you know this is not it's it's not fact and even if even if it was like based on nonfiction, right cool but it's still a, it's you know it's a film it's i know i a weird example i have is like uh it's in the the hurricane the um, Denzel movie. Oh, the hurricane is so full of shit. Yeah. I, the, David or Dan Hedaya's character doesn't exist. That was not a character. And he's kind of a linchpin at the, the beginning of the film. Yeah. It's, but it, yeah, for, for cinematic purposes, it's a, it's a reason to do it. Like how does this movie exist? If we actually show the real death of Marcus Aurelius, it doesn't exist. It doesn't propel that story into this. Well, it's less interesting. Yeah. Yes. He did die in 180 AD, but he died in Vienna of the plague. Yeah. That, that, that's what I mean. Like, obviously, his son did not kill him, thus prompting his reign well, as the new emperor. A couple episodes back when MJ was on um, the, at the Elephant Man with me, yeah. he said it very well. He said, how beholden is a film to real history? Yeah. And I'm, I'm sort of, I'm starting to soften to that much more than I was when I was a younger, more virile man. <laughs> is that ever a word you would have used to describe yourself? No, but you know, <laughs> uh, you know, we we can pretend. Um, something like Braveheart, I got very passionate about how full of shit that film sure, is. But exactly, you know, like, what does it matter if you want a history lesson? Read a book. Yeah, it's, yeah, and I'll say I I still agree with you, but I'll say even like Social Network is is an example where I would maybe be a little more upset, although I still, I'm not, that it's not historically accurate. <laughs> sure. But that's that's a story about, you know, living people in a very recent event, whatever, uh, and about a real thing that happened. This is just, uh, this being Gladiator, is just a human story about revenge um, and, you know, being on top and then down to the bottom and then have to work your way back to the top again. That's set in this time, you know. And, like, I'm not that upset about the inaccuracies of Marcus Aurelius, because if if they don't include those inaccuracies, then the film doesn't really work. It doesn't have the same power. I, I I'll take the dramatic weight over the historical accuracy for something like this, um, even much more so even than something like the Social Network, which it still doesn't really bother me that that's you know. I think it's also to do with the way that you present it. Yes. And, and the stylization. Agreed. There's something that I think is very egregiously 
wrong and should be taken to task, and that's U-571, the, the, the submarine film, where that does present itself as a piece of, of historical, mm. uh, something with historical weight, whereas I think this, this does enough as far as stylization and... We know that comic, you know, as a, even as a as a as a layman, somebody who doesn't have a, a grasp on history, I think you can connect enough of the dots to know that oh, an emperor wasn't really killed in a gladiatorial sort of situation. Whereas U five seven one goes, no, 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 no. We as Americans, we we single handedly won the war by you know solving this code and finding this uh, finding whatever decoder it was. And fuck that movie. That movie's so is that not stupid. how history happened? No. Oh no. Okay. No, we we Brits we solved that. It's it's a Brit versus American thing, which also brings me. You mentioned uh, you mentioned the Patriot earlier. We read some. <laughs> you mentioned the. I, I, Damn I'm not, him! I'm not Damn gonna, that man! I, yeah, I'm not going to go on a huge historical <laughs> rant, but I'm really glad you mentioned the Patriot earlier because Mel Gibson turned this film down, and how great of a decision was that? Feeling that he was too old, and he went and turned around and he made the masterpiece. That was the Patriot instead. Oh man, it's fuck that movie. It's so good. It's so. It's so good. The Patriot. The only good thing in that is Jason Isaacs. Damn him! Damn that man! The only good thing in the Patriot is Jason Isaacs and Tom Wilkinson, who is a genuine cocksucker. And Tom Wilkinson. I don't even remember Tom. Tom Wilkinson is just. Does he have more than one scene? Yeah, he does. I just like the main dude. I just remember him at the end. Eh, yeah, but fuck whatever. Josh, have yeah. you seen The Patriot? Yeah. Oh, not. I mean, I don't. I've kind of blocked it from my memory <laughs> yeah, fuck, a little fuck, bit. Fuck I don't, that there was nothing. There is yes, nothing. Technically, redeemable. I've seen it, but uh, by all intents and purposes, I don't ask me about it. I don't. There's want to there's nothing it. redeemable. Yeah. And it's I a movie about Tom Wilkinson's yeah. character. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> According to Adam, <laughs> Tom the, Wilkinson is the only actor in that movie. The the last thing I'll touch on about the historic accuracies though is like the only time that it really bugs me particularly is like. Maybe like a movie like Argo, which I actually do really like Argo, but I, there's there's certain things that they really like left out of that of that movie, and they do paint that as a historical movie. Yeah, and in that case, it does kind of chaff me a little bit. Yeah, it's, but, a, it's a little frustrating. I think but. the the hope, and I I'm sure a majority of people don't do this, but I know, especially if it's a movie that that makes it very apparent that this is based on a real story. Yeah. You know, they they make, you know make it very apparent if the, if it is. Is like part of the fun for me is to go. Okay, so where like where is this different? Like to go do my own. And I I I can't say I spend hours doing this, but mm. like you know a quick search. Like oh that was pretty close. This was off. Yeah. Yada yada yada. But I I know most people don't. Like most people will watch Argo and go. I just watched a documentary. Yeah. Right. On, yeah. on what a, happened. It's important to separate the truth from the fiction there and to know that you are just watching a piece of entertainment and and if it prompts you to do i i think it's it's a success if it prompts you to turn around and do the research of your own and find out what the truth actually was yeah and Mm -hmm. one of my again we don't have to keep going down this historical rabbit hole but one of my favorite things about picking and choosing what is real and what is not is the fact that originally in the script they had something that did actually happen in this time which was gladiators doing product placement in the arena, and they thought, "Oh, audiences won't believe that. They'll think that's too anachronistic. That you know, this would this would never happen." But it actually did. They would one hundred percent advertise products that were you know that had come out at the time. I, I think that's great, and I think that should have been left in. I I really think they should have gone for that. 
as long as it wasn't like Pizza Hut or something. Yeah, but yes. No, there was, they, they were advertising <laughs> Roman Pizza Hut what, in wait, 180 wait, 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 AD. Wait, 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 wait. Wouldn't it have been Little Caesars? Ah. 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 Shut the fuck up. Ah. Woo! <laughs> Damn him! Still got it. <laughs> get out of here. You you get right on out of here. I, I will soon. Yeah. Um, yeah, I. this is, you know, we're so far into this podcast now. This is a lot like Goodfellas, like last week. Like, I just, I really only have good things to say about well, this Well, do you want to find some negative things to say? Let's, I have one. Let's do it. I have one. What, uh, the CGI birds in this movie are awful. <laughs> well, the CGI. <laughs> they're, they're really bad. I did praise the Coliseum, but it, it's more of like for its time. Like, yeah. when you watch it with, you know, with 2020 glasses on, it. I, there's like the first time we see it, like a, I, I want to say like crows fly by and they just look like black dots going by. Like, oh, no. Well, the whole idea is to, I, I understand that sentiment, but the whole idea is to, is to give the scale of the Colosseum. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I, and I, that, I great, that great uh, line that Juba has where he says, I didn't know that men could build such things. Mm-hmm. And just to have little black dots sailing by, I think that's, yeah, you could do it better now, obviously, because technology, it's, we're 20 years past, so you can do so many better things, but... It, for me, it still works. It's not enough to oh, no, no. deride I, the film. That was me. almost. That's more of me. Like I, that's I'm you digging. Yeah, you're digging yeah. For, for, for things to be like. I don't, you know, and and I think because of like when this is set and how how high the stakes are, there's like I can't even say that like like yeah, Oliver Reed's going for it in scenes and Joaquin Phoenix is going for it in scenes, but it's like, but Jesus Christ, like he's the emperor now who like is in love with his sister and the guy he thought was dead, who was supposed to basically have his job is just came back from the dead. Like the stakes are high. So you, you, you buy the reactions, you buy what's going on. So it's like, I'm not even going to nitpick. Like if I feel like they're doing too much because this, this is like literal life and death. Well, an entire empire, the, 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 the large, one of the largest empires in the world that has ever been is at stake. Mm hmm. Josh, do you have something negative you want to throw on the I fire? Have, yeah, the well, it's it's kind of a plot hole that's always kind of bugging me. But I, I've never understood. First of all, when Maximus is about to be executed, in uh, they're in Germania still, and he's on his knees, he somehow does a headbutt backwards and hits the guy's face, even though he's at you know on his knees, yeah. he's at crotch level basically. That's fine. I don't understand how it never got back that. All his, all of the, they were all Praetorian. Where, they were where all were those the, six guys. They were essentially the king's guard. They were the emperors, you know. Like, and where, where did they go? Oh, they just, they died of the plague on the way home. And uh, well, we this is we don't know what happened to Max. <laughs> this is great. This brings us to the extended cut. Now, mm-hmm. Adam had texted me a couple of days ago and asked me which cut he should watch. Now, mm-hmm. Ridley's preferred version is is this one that we have on right now, the mm-hmm. theatrical. But mm-hmm. there is an extended cut which goes for I think just a couple minutes shy. Of three, uh, hours. of three hours yeah. and there are a couple of really great things I mean I, I prefer this cut as well myself I, I love the the briskness of, the briskness of it I don't mm-hmm. feel a minute of it's two and a half hour runtime. Uh, in the in the extended cut there is a scene where they do actually address that because he once he he sees that Maximus is still alive he asks how this could be and it turns out that some of the Praetorian guards they lied to him mm-hmm. about Maximus having having died and then there's a whole sequence where he executes two of them and it's a it's a test of trust he actually stands behind them while the because he wants to test the loyalty of the guards around because he doesn't trust really anybody right he feels like they don't have and he mentions it a few times in the film Commodus feels like he doesn't have any respect 
and not in a Rodney Dangerfield kind of way. Oh, Jesus. Um, so he actually stands behind the two guys that are getting executed while the archers do that. That is really, there's, there's two or three things I miss. That is the one that in the theatrical I really miss the most. Another thing that I really love is right towards the end, before he has that fight with Maximus, he goes down into this little hall in the palace, which is filled with statues and busts, and he comes to one of his father, and we get one last sort of, I can't, I can't stand the separation between us and how much my dad, I perceived my father hating me, and so he takes a knife, and he's just chipping away at one of the, and he is just fucking, it is honestly... I'm really bummed that it's not in the theatrical because Joaquin really goes for it and he is just chipping the ever-loving fuck out of this statue with his knife. Now, you you mentioned something that I, I wanted to bring up because I, I think this Gladiator falls into a special special section of movies for me. So I, I, I made sure to track this. It's about 40 minutes before we get to the part where he's seen his wife and, and son dead and he's been taken by um, by Proximo. It's in about an hour before we ever see Rome. And I, I, say, I say those two things to say that this might be the longest and easiest rewatchable movie that I know. Like this movie is two and a half hours. It is, mm. it is a chunk of time to set aside to watch this movie. And yet I get to the end, I'm like, wait, what? It's over? Like, I don't know how um, like, that's possible. Like, mm-hmm. like a movie that, like, uh, uh, that I know that we both like, but is very long is, is Stalker. And you feel Stalker go by. But, Not but in a bad way. But you're supposed but to. You feel, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But this, it's like two and a half hours goes by and it's like, seriously? <laughs> wow. No, okay. you, you could get away with another half hour. And, and I it's... do recommend people watch the extended as well so you can pick and choose which version you prefer. There is a lot that is a value in that mm. extended cut. It's just, it's segment, it's segmented so well that you, you could literally come in at any moment and know, oh, that's the next thing that's going to happen. And I mm. think it's almost like, I, and I don't know who gets credit for this in the end, but like, like obviously there's an opening battle. There's two gladiatorial fights before they go to Rome. And then there's a, there's the big, there's the group one at Rome there's the one where he fights Sven Olthorsen and the lions in one, or the, the tigers, and then there's with Commodus. So we know that there are going to be these, these moments throughout. And then the acting is so good in between that it's like, well, shit, all right, I could just, just watch this moment too, and that, that'll be fine. And mm-hmm. I, it's just, there's always something to look forward to in the movie. It's another one of those films that I say, if you catch it on cable, you catch it 20, 30 minutes in, I defy you to turn it off. I, yeah. I don't think you can. It passes what the watch test for me. It's just like I'm watching a, a movie that's really slow. I, I hate. I, I'm not trying to unnecessarily jab at it, but like Interstellar, I was checking my watch. That's, you won't hear any grievances from us. No. Four or five times yeah, in, in that movie. Yeah. Um, and uh, this one though, it's it's two and a half hours long. Ian knows that uh, I'm because and our close friends, I'm notorious for. I, it's hard for me to sit through some movies. So I'll I'll parcel them out. Like I'll watch like. A, you know, an hour of it here and then I'll go make dinner and then come back and finish it. Sure. But, uh, but this one, it's just like, you can't, there's no, there's no good place to turn it off. And that's not a negative, of course. It, yeah. I'm just lavishing praise <laughs> on it. But it just kind of just flows so beautifully. Um, even though it's kind of a slow brooding tale, there's a lot of action stuff in it, but it's really just like a, it's a drama. It's a story about revenge and, but it's still, it's, um, yeah, it, it's, it, it, you never, you don't really feel the time that much at all. And I, 
I do. I only have one negative thing to say as well, and it's actually it's funny. It's this sequence that's on right now, as as we have it on in the background. I don't think that Lucilla and Maxima should kiss. I know we need the romantic angle, but it kind of it's kind of a slap in the face to the memory of his dead wife and son. I think mm-hmm. I know there is some sexual tension between them. They hint at the fact that they could have been lovers back in the day. They obviously had some attraction to each other when they were much younger. But I I think the decision to have them kiss is a very Hollywood decision and it doesn't mm. for me it doesn't it doesn't work. I have one more nitpick. Oh, you know, go for it. And I I I knew it had this it's not this scene, but there's the moment where they're trying to free Maximus to to get out um because that's the whole plan. Like the the other gladiators are going to sort of cover for him while he can escape. The, the score there is really good. The score goes very classic yeah. epic there. But Lucilla's the one that comes to basically release him. And what I don't have the lines because she's like, "Okay, we got to get you out of here." Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they stop and have an extended conversation that lasts way too long, given the fact that she comes in in a huff saying, let's get, let's get going. Oh, no, sorry. It's, yeah, that's the scene where they kiss. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah that, that's that's, that's just out. like, it's like, <laughs> yeah. okay, you, you came in here all huffy. Like, we got to get the shit going. Don't, don't, if he says something, be like, fuck you. Come on. We got to go. That's, that's the bit that I would have trimmed so that I could have. Commodus stabbing the shit out of his dad's face. I'm fine right. with that. Yeah. And uh, it, you're, you're, I agree with you completely because it does kind of betray the the memory of his wife, which throughout the whole movie That's is kept motivation. is kept alive. That's yeah. his motivation. You know, she was she was alive before he was you know wrongly arrested, of course. And uh, that that whole thing is kept alive throughout. And even after that scene, at the very end, uh, I can't remember who says it. I wish I remember, but someone says, uh, I think actually it was her says, "Go to them," and then that's when he kind of. Yeah, she, away she, almost gives him, she almost yeah. gives him permission to die. To, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, to die. Like you've, you've done, you've done your, done what you came here to do, um, so to speak. And I do feel like I like, I kind of like the sexual tension between them. You can, you kind of get the feeling that she broke his heart or something, you know, in, in the past. And you, I kind of like that they have that, they, they have that, that tension between them. But, but I do kind of wish that it never came to fruition. Exactly, I just, you I, don't need anything more than the tension. Exactly, especially because the the thing with his wife and son is alive until the very last scene. Really, he's when he, so you know, meets them in the afterlife, so right. to speak. You know, whatever. And I'm I'm gonna make a case for my favorite line right now. Where Juba asks him, "What do you say? What do you say?" Well, he sees he's finally got the totems back from, <laughs> oh yeah, from uh, <laughs> from his from sir, from yeah. Tommy Flanagan, and he asks him what, he, and he tells him, "You know, I talked to my son about you know making sure that he keeps his heels together when he's riding, and and uh, you know the advice that he gives to his son." And then he asks, "Well, what about your wife?" Well, that is not your business. Yeah. <laughs> I I know it's cheesy, but it's. It's a it's one of those lines that is so full of subtext about yeah. a man who cares so deeply for his wife. This is private. This is I, I, I don't know. It just it works for me on every level. I love it so much. I think it, it does a good job too to to uh, there's a bit of levity when we need it to bolster uh, their relationship, too. Yeah, I can't remember the, the guy's name, but uh, he's on screen right now. Uh, Juba. Juba. Juba's yeah. right. And he's like, he's, you know, I told him what I was going to say to his kids and my wife, that's none of your business. And they have a cheeky little smile, yeah, like yeah. a little laugh. And I don't know. It just, it works. And, and, and you're right. It is pretty cheesy, but it's would probably be more cheesy if he said, I love you. And yeah, I, exactly. You know, yeah. It's, it's definitely the right thing to do. Yeah. So, um, I, I, there's, I, there's, there's too much to talk about. And I know we still want to do our, our, our Russell Crowe Mount Rushmore. So, uh, I, the last thing I just want to pose is, is what is your favorite, gladiatorial fight is it the first one where they're they're chained up to a partner 
and they've got to get through. Is it Russell Crowe's solo fight where it ends with him cutting the dude's head off? Is it the first fight in Rome where they have the, the chariots? The, the Battle of Carthage. Yep. Is and, it, uh, is correct it, me if I'm wrong, but aren't the barbarians supposed to lose? I believe that's historically accurate. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, is it the fourth one where uh, Russell Crowe fights the guy coming out of retirement, or is it the last one with Commodus? What is what is your what are your favorite of those? I I can't choose, man. Like my gut, my gut instinct is to say the fight against Commodus because I love the fact that it comes down to towards the end of the fight. It literally just comes down to hand to hand combat, where Russell just even though he's dying just. Still, he can't give up, and he is just wailing on him with his fucking fists. And you, let me tell you, in in this 4K version anyway, you feel every single punch. Like, it's the sound design is fucking perfect. But, I don't know, man, the Battle of Carthage, they, they all have so much value. The Battle of Carthage is just fucking cool, and is a little nod to, to Ben-Hur, and then the fight where they're all chained together, that's a great little nod to Spartacus. Um... And then, I mean, the fight with, with uh, Sven and the, uh, or, or Tigris and the, uh, and the, and the lion and the, the, the tigers is just, again, it's another one of those just, it's so fucking iconic that the imagery in that and Russell rolling away from, from the tigers. I don't, I don't know, man. I genuinely so, can't pick. You, it's so funny because you left out the one that is mine. Oh, really? It's, his solo fight his is solo my fight. favorite. Oh, yeah. is it really? Yeah. See, I would rank that last. Oh, my God. I fucking them. love it. I think technically it's the most, uh, having done some stage combat, I love it because it's like everybody everybody has a different weapon and the way that he handles them and just the just the, the baller move of the two swords in and then chopping the head off. In that in that GQ interview, he mentioned like he t- went to Ridley and was like, I really want to cut off this guy's head at the end. Mm-hmm. And it just reminds me when I was in Lear, when I was in I was in a production of King Lear, it was my thesis role. And um where this Edmund fights Edgar at the end of this play, and our fight director was really cool about working with us. And he was like, Okay, so what do you think happens next? Okay, what happens next? And then we worked through this fight and I go, Hey, there's something I've always kind of wanted to do on stage. Can we do it? And he's like, What's that? I go, I want, I want to there's a moment where I pick him up off the ground. I was wondering if instead he could do the thing where I go to pick him up and he launches me over him and it looks like he's using his feet to push me. He's like, can you do that? I go, yeah, I can do that. And I showed it to him. He's like, perfect. It's in the fight. It's like, yeah. That's so I, I, there's some, there's some like <laughs> affinity that I have for Russell Crowe being like, hey, I really want to cut this dude's head off. Can we do it? And then that <laughs> when he, he quotes where this guy like, how many heads do we have left? Yeah. All right, cool. Well, as he's talking <laughs> about, you know, he takes the cigar out of his mouth and... <laughs> his ridley seemed pretty good yeah yeah he does a he does a well after five films you think he would That's do a pretty true. good ridley yeah uh josh your favorite of i the- gotta go with the uh, battle of carthage I, it's very satisfying because that's that's the the gladiator that's maximus kind of reaching his potential as a gladiator um, but also still being the general that's that's right and they already he already gained a lot of respect leading up to that but that was him taking charge and um they weren't supposed to win that fight. That's that's a heavy point in the movie. But uh, that's that's to me is the most satisfying. But it is hard to pick one though. I mean, all of those are yeah, fantastic. I, I have a split decision. It's between the the fight with Tigris and the final fight because the the, the catharsis in that final fight against sure. Thomas I mean, is, dramatically, uh, yes. of course. I mean, there's yeah. there's the most emotional weight. But as far as on the one fight. which the stakes feel so high, I mean, the stakes feel high in all of them, obviously. But this fight that is actually on right now with the Tigers is just so fucking good. Before we talk Russell Crowe, I have one final thing that I want to 
talk about if we're if we're ready to sort of move towards the end and do our big Russell Crowe thing. We're at an hour forty. That, that sounds just about so. right. Sounds about right. <laughs> just so I, we know. I figured we'd hit two. I want to do a little sequel talk. Oh yes. There, there is a sequel in the works right now, which I don't think is a good idea. It's being written by a guy named Peter Craig. Uh, he did write The Town, which is a really great movie. Mm-hmm. He's kind of a sequel writer at the moment. He wrote uh, Top Gun Maverick, which I, I'm sorry, I cannot fucking wait for that movie. And then he also wrote the new Bad, Bad Boys for Life, which I actually heard some pretty good things about. I've I'm, heard that's, I'm, I'm that's pretty, what I'm I pretty heard. excited. Honestly, I'm pretty excited to see it. Uh, but Russell Crowe commissioned one of probably one of the most infamous unmade scripts of all time when he commissioned nick cave of nick cave and the bad seeds to write a sequel to gladiator and i have a few details from it because the whole script is available online you can you can track it down you can read it if you want it's it's called christ killer which is just a wow fucking insane title yes so the film opens with the end of Gladiator. Maximus is dead. He believes that now is that he's he's gone to Elysium. He's going to be reunited with his wife and child in the afterlife. That's not what happens. Is it a zombie flick? Kind of. <laughs> oh no. Kind of. Oh no. <laughs> um, so he gets to the afterlife and it's he's thrust into hell and he's thrown on the these the shores of this this black beach, kind of like Iwo Jima ish. You know, the sea is completely black, almost kind of like what. Uh, what dreams may come it's kind of got that vibe to it okay um and he is asked by the gods who are all in kind of a state of of death because they have been betrayed by one of their number hephaestus who is actually a greek god and not a roman one doesn't matter he they charge him with killing this god who has betrayed them and they said then and only then will you be reunited with your wife and family well he goes to kill him and instead of being reunited with his wife and child, he is thrust 20 years into the future, so into 200 AD, back in Rome, where for some reason his son is still alive, and now Lucius has kind of taken on the Commodus role and has turned into an evil dickwad. Hmm. You know, technical term. And he, he meets his son and, and with his adult son, again, who was alive for some reason, and he's reunited with Juba as well. They decide to lead a revolt of early Christians who were being persecuted by Lucius against him. And then the film takes on a weird time travel nature because, and it's sort of like a parable of because Maximus decided to lead a violent revolt instead of choosing diplomacy in a nonviolent one, he has cursed himself and humanity to always be a violent race. So he is thrust through time into the world wars, into the civil war uh, into Vietnam, and then eventually becoming a general in, at the Pentagon is is kind of the end of the film. Ooh. Yeah, it's... Russell Crowe's response was great. He said to... I said, and I quote to Nick Cave, I don't like it, mate. And of course <laughs> it was never made. And Nick Cave, he knew, supposedly he knew this film was never going to be made, so he just swung for the fucking fences. And anybody who's seen that terrible Wolverine movie will know that that's kind that's, of... Oh my God, I'm so glad you said that's it. Kind of like, that's what I was They thinking. kind of took up that mantle of thrusting Wolverine through the ages that's and showing funny. you in every in all these different conflicts. But there you go. That's, that's a little bit of information about the unmade Christ killer. As Woof. I said, the script is out there. Mm. Yeah, you find it if you've got a couple hours to burn yeah. on that. Hard, fucking, hard pass. Yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of respect its ambition to a degree, but... 
really glad that that isn't made. And I'm really hoping that Ridley decides not to make a Gladiator sequel. This is a film, if ever a film didn't need a sequel, this is definitely towards the top of that list. Yeah, for sure. It just feels unnecessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do, however, really want him to make his Battle of Britain film because that would be fucking spectacular. And he's teased that for about 10 years now. So here we come. Russell Crowe. Yeah. So we did this a few weeks ago with Jack Nicholson. We decided to go, well, what what would be on, on Jack Nicholson's Mount Rushmore? And yeah, I feel like I watched a bunch of, of Russell Crowe this week. Now, are there any... What I would, what I want to ask first, maybe, is just like, are there any movies that you that you watched that you either know like this is not making it, or that were like really close to making your Rushmore that won't? I have, I have two runner-ups. Okay, my two runner-ups are uh, in. So let's just say Mount Rushmore had six heads. So six and five in this order, going from six to five, would be American Gangster would be number six, Cinderella Man would be number five. Yeah, Cinderella Man is a t- is my five too. Yeah, and it sucks because that movie is so good. Yeah, that was gonna be my recommend, but I I figured we'd talk about it at some point. And part of the reason why I wanted Josh to come on this discussion as well because you are such a Russell Crowe fan, and right. I know that we we bonded pretty early in our friendship over Cinderella Man. Yeah, it, it, yeah, that's that's right, and that is actually I should ask, I should clarify before is this based on performances or our affection for the movie. Uh, I think for me, it's a little bit of both. I think it's going to be, I think each person's Mount Rushmore will be their, their own. Cause like I, I want to will Cinderella man on, but I feel like, you know, if we were going to look at the most iconic for whatever reason, because he was the best in it or because Mm -hmm. it was what made him famous or whatever, like, it's. I think it's to each their own. Well, I, so right now I'll spoil it. If if we're basing it solely on performances, I think a beautiful mind would be on my Mount Rushmore, but it's it's not. So I have a different one that I that I had someone have a flip flop flip flop with as a runner up. As a runner, oh my runner up, I guess would be. I'll just say my runner up is a beautiful, not a beautiful mind. I'm sorry, uh, Cinderella Man as yeah. well. Now I love this movie, and this was for Peter. My life, I would have said this was my favorite movie. Not that I thought it was the best movie. Fucking great, but Fa- favorite movie of all time. Of that specific time in my okay, life, okay, you know, yeah, yeah. you know, it kind of fluctuates. Well, a lot. That's, that's but but I just mean like it was just a movie that I watched a lot when I was, you know, talking about a movie that made me cry. Teens. Oh yeah, Fuck. like um, like ten minutes in, you were just a ball of fucking tears. Also, one that to its discredit, you really feel the length on, but it but it has yeah. payoff, so that's why you yeah. you know you forgive it. But I uh, that I I will say is my five and uh, one that's in my top four uh, or my Mount Rushmore is not that I like that movie more, it's just that I appreciate the performance more on it. We'll when we get there. But so, so I, I just have one, I, so I, I can't believe I, I, I rewatched Les Mis. Because of the article I sent you? No, no, no. Because I, I hadn't seen it since theaters. And so here's the thing. That movie is just not good. Um, I liked it in the theaters. I, I know that I did. Well, and and, talk about a movie you feel everything fucking minute of well the the problem with it is that you can tell um the uh i'm gonna the names are gonna escape me but i that i think it's eponine the woman who sings um on my own later in the movie like you could tell she did broadway a lot of the side characters you could tell actually like sing sing for real life so like i i hugh jackman is bad in the movie He's he's not that's, good. That's part, again part of the reason that I sent you that article is because they highlight um, 
what Hugh Jackman does in that, where he's doing that speaking singing. Yeah, and I don't think I noticed it as much the first time, but it's it's pretty obvious he's not singing it. Yeah, he's, I don't know why they let him get away with it. Um, well, do you think this is maybe I'm stepping on your on what you're going to say here, but maybe that's why they hired Russell Crowe to make Hugh Jackman look really good. No, <laughs> it, the problem is that Hugh Jackman has a Broadway background. Yeah. So for whatever reason, he decided to make this more about the the words mm-hmm. and not not singing them um i still think russell crowe does not great in that movie i think when he when he sticks at a lower register it it works and well, yeah because he's got a very deep baritone and, and, voice. and it, maybe that's just part of like the the production of of les mis that i had to listen to when i you know was listening, listening to musicals in, in like undergrad I, that's the, the, the chabert that i that i knew um, that's not what I heard, and it was it was pretty. Well, stark part of the other contrast. thing in the article that struck me as really interesting is that Les Mis was an '80s musical, right? Yes. So it has a very heavy synth '80s feel yeah. to it, and yep. of course they strip that out of the film completely, and they make it sound like a much more classical type of musical, mm-hmm. yeah. which I think may be a mistake. I'm just glad that at least they kept the chorus in because that's pretty pivotal to the movie yeah. anyways though that's not it that's not making my, my rush more yeah um i do really like russell crowe in that film for the record i think he does a, a fantastic job as javert especially his last scene his suicide scene i really did touch me why did they have to make his death so like they show him land on the ground for like a split second it's like jesus it's so rough for yeah, some it's, reason uh, it is unnecessarily jesus christ i i don't i have a I, I didn't like that movie but That's i fine. but i also just i don't like film adaptions of musicals personally i don't they, like i don't like the whole we're singing to each other as they, instead of talking they and, mostly don't work. and russell i mean i, I don't I, he, I think he did a fine job acting but the the singing you can tell was a bit forced he doesn't have the range that some of the others do but that, yeah anyways okay so here I'm, let's play i'm gonna play a guessing game i'm gonna see uh, do we all have LA Confidential on our Mount Rushmore? I certainly do. I don't. You don't? Really? Yeah. Oh, I do. Now, I showed you LA Confidential. I love it. And we, again, another movie that we really bonded over. This was this number was, six. Oh, really? Okay. Well, that's, I mean, it's still top 10. That's fine. Mostly, and for me, I'll be honest, like, I, I think performance wise, it's, it's fine. But, like, this is, it makes it because this is the breakthrough. This is the, like, fuck me. And it here was, is Russell Crowe. There's nostalgia for me because it was my first exposure to Russell Crowe, and he fucking, in a cast, which is literally fucking monumental he dominates yeah. i mean he's up against some of the best in the world at the time even even guy pierce who was another kind of unknown yeah. in the u.s i mean he trounces fucking everybody at every turn that is one of the most heartfelt performances of of recent of at least the 90s that movie's so fucking good and it's yeah it is just great from fucking I, end to end i'm a sucker for a, a noir anyway but yeah but and it's like it's a noir, but also like it's like what the artist wanted to be, but yeah. so much better. Like like it's paying homage, and yet also it's it's its own thing. Yeah, absolutely. And mm-hmm. I like Gladiator revitalizing yeah. Sword and Sandal epics. You could argue that Ali Confidential revitalized sort of modern noir, or yeah. sort of created the movement of modern noir. The moment where, because he's on such a crusade against domestic violence, against men who who hit their women, and then when he hits Kim Basinger, and realizes what he's done, and it's literally the fucking hairs on my arm are standing up when I think about that mm-hmm. moment. It fucking levels me every time, yeah. every single time. And the great scene with him and Guy Pierce, where they they finally decide to team up, 
Is that like, how you did the good cop, bad cop? Yeah. Or or <laughs> even before that, where he's like, why, why do you want to do this? The night owl made you. And they talk about, you know, the, his reasons you why. To... I, I, I've got a wrecking ball. You want to help me swing it? Oh, so fucking good. <laughs> Stay right, away from him when his blood's up. So so let's get. I want to hear one from you. What do you? What's 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 making your Matt Rushmore? Okay, so this might be a controversial one for for you two. Do but, it. Uh, we love. It's okay we, for you both to be wrong. Uh, <laughs> we love controversy. So the first. Uh, also, fuck you. Yeah, <laughs> three ten to Yuma. Okay, I really like that movie. I rewatched it yeah. this this week. Yeah. Uh, so much better than I remember it. Being. Oh yeah. Um. It's. I don't know. I I wish he did more. And he's certainly he's very cool in it. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. very like. Like level-headed, like I, I, I got the whole thing down. I guess I don't know. I, I feel like that's more of a, a Christian Bale vehicle in a way. Mm. Nothing, and it's not taken away from his performance at all. Right? Yeah. I, I, I fucking Luke, or, uh, Luke Wilson's in that movie for like four minutes. Yeah. What, what is happening? No, I liked it. I, well, I thought it was that, very. And that film was a great showcase for Ben Foster as well. Like that was the first movie where I was aware of him. He, he's poor, Charlie, right? Charlie, yeah. yeah. Poor Ben Foster just played the same character in everything. He's always just villainous. He's always kind of a dick. No, have you seen Leave No Trace? No. That movie will change him for you. I no, I, I, I have heard good things about it's that. It's fucking But amazing. you know, there's that. There's Hell or High Water, who he is in Six Feet Under, uh, Hostage. Like, he's mm-hmm. always yeah. just yeah. kind of a, a dick. Yeah. But yeah. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. No, he's, he's great. I don't think that's too controversial. I mean, yeah. that's... I've. He's good in it. Yeah, he's yeah, good yeah. in it. And it's a solid western. I mean, it's a James Mangold film. He yep. he's an he's a director who is really starting to to go up in my estimation. I mean, I wasn't the biggest fan of Ford versus Ferrari, I like but it. I can, I can see it as a film that grows on me. Yeah. I also fucking love Identity. I will not I, hide yes. my affection for Identity. I <laughs> yes. fucking love that, that movie. movie. Is, is genuinely great. Have you seen that one, Josh? That's I a think so. big ensemble cast. It's a. It's a. I don't like want to spoil thriller. the twist. Okay. Is yeah. Okay. So Identity good. and Matchstick Men. All right. Yeah. Nah, Identity. Okay. <laughs> and Matchstick Men. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I. So I guess. So. So give me one of yours. What do you got? So we we talked about LA Confidential. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Gladiator is in my is on my Mount Rushmore. Is that making yours? Yeah, it's making mine too. Okay, yeah. I want to. There's one. There's one. Do we need to talk one. about that movie or? Uh, no, I think we're okay. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. Thank you, thank yeah. you for checking though. I'm yeah, glad I just want to make sure. Very, yeah. very courteous. I don't want to make sure the listeners know. You know, yeah. know how we feel. He might be one of our most courteous guests that we ever. <laughs> that's, that's perfect. That's great. <laughs> yeah. uh, so obviously, Gladiator. But and I, there's one that I want to save because I know it's making yours. Okay. And I know that Josh only just watched it for the first time this week, so we'll save that one. But Master and Commander makes my Mount Rushmore. Uh, same handily that's, uh, that's my third does not make mine really i, I, I rewatched so I, it i feel like yeah, you need to defend why it's not on yours versus us and telling you why it's on ours the, for the same reason that 310 to yuma doesn't make it i don't i don't there's this is the actor i mean i want more peaks and valleys mm. his character kind of just floats in this nice like in this in this kind of like his his through line of emotion is pretty much here i disagree with you but carry on <laughs> like i just i i see him like there's where he's where the moment that i think the the best acting of him in the movie is when he's trying to help paul bettany with the surgery and like there's a lot of care and affection that he's like like trying to help but like not looking away and i don't it's think also he, one of the only times we see weakness in that character well sure i just i i guess i just i there's there's not enough of a performance in there that I like that I 
LA Confidential makes my list mostly because of its iconic nature. All the other ones for me make it because I think genuinely the, the performance is really good. And I just think the other two that I have, I think he knocks it out of the park more. Uh, and that's fair. My, my counter argument to you saying that there's not enough emotional range in his character in Master and Commander is that he is the captain. And so he has to have a measure of control the entire film. He can't, he can't show weakness. He can't show emotion. He's mm-hmm. got to lead these men into, in, in the times that they lived in, almost certain death. That's why I really love the, the, the uh, not to cut you off, the, the, the insert of the scenes with him and, and the doctor, with Paul yes. Bettany. Yeah. Uh, obvi- I mean, it's an obvious ploy, you know, to show some emotional Yeah, because that, yeah, that's but, the only other time he gets to be yeah. emotional is when they He's disagree with, with each other. Yeah, yeah. but... And learning to play the violin for it, which he really did. Paul Bettany really learned to play the cello. I, I think I think watching the making of might sway you differently because you really see Russell Crowe come into his own as as not just a not just an actor, but a, as a, a leader on set because that's essentially what he had to be. You know, he would organize you know rugby games with the guys. He would make sure that there was separation between officers and the guys on the lower decks, and really. Mm-hmm he was really coming into his own as a method actor on that film. No. And I, I it's, I'm kind of glad that 310 to Yuma got mentioned too, because those are master and commander and 310 to Yuma were both movies where I'm like, if I were to look at them on my shelf, I'd be like, yeah, that was okay. And then having rewatched them, I'm like, no, they're, they're much better than okay. These are, these are good movies. Your point is just Russell's performance. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And what, what it wouldn't necessarily brings to the table for me, I was the opposite for you with master and commander going into it. I was almost, Certain it was going to be um, Cinderella Man, Gladiator, maybe Three Ten to Yuma, and probably L.A. Confidential. Um, but uh, but afterwards, I did like Master Commander the first time I saw it. But uh, on the rewatch this time, I actually, for whatever reason, had a lot more appreciation for it. it like I, I used to think it kind of slogged along. In this case, I thought it was um, uh, really fun, and I actually I liked Russell's performance, even though yeah, I understand it's not it doesn't have the peaks and valleys that you would you know maybe expect for. Well, what, him, I, but... what I was really happy about is when I showed it to you, you had the, almost a, a very similar reaction to what I had at the end of it. I was like, no way. This can't be the fucking end. Yeah. There's no way. I was like, the, I need another hour of this. Like, yeah. minimum. Minimum. Because there's like 20 fucking books. Yeah. Yes. And they, they smash together like the first and the 12th or something like that to make this movie. And, oh man, it's just so, to pardon the pun, it's so masterfully made. I think it is, I genuinely, I... I really struggle between my favorite Peter Weir film. It comes down to that and witness. And I, it's such a toss up for me. Mm. I mean, it really is Peter, Peter Weir at his height. As I said, it's Russell Crowe coming into himself, not only as an actor, but a leader of, of, of men, a leader on the sets. It's mm. just, it works for me on every single level. And it's so beautiful. That score is great. His camaraderie with Paul Bettany. Obviously they had a bit of an advantage because they worked together on a beautiful mind a couple of years before, but as I said about Gladiator, ever a film that didn't need a sequel, opposite of that, ever a film that fucking did, I would mm. take five or six more Master and Commanders. Yeah. And if, you, if you've seen Russell Crowe lately, they could even just, they can plug in John Goodman. They look pretty similar nowadays. Oh, <laughs> and it could be just, you know, 40 years later. I, and... I'm so glad you brought that. His art of the divorce thing that he did yeah. a couple of years ago, like him getting divorced from that, that woman that he was with for so many years. I, I see a man who is now... Yes, he's let himself go, but he also seems, especially in that GQ interview, seemed pretty jolly. He somebody said he so, looks like Santa Claus. <laughs> he looks so fucking content and happy, and I'm yeah. I'm really I'm really happy for him because he didn't he had a rough go of it for a while, and he mm. didn't make it very easy for himself. I mean, he pretty much sabotaged 
Cinderella Man at the box office and the reputation of that film there for a little while because the incident with the bellboy happened right as that film yeah. was coming out. And that movie's incredible. And, and it is, uh, Paul, Paul Giamatti, like, yeah. fuck me yeah. running. The story, the story about the, the production company telling him, hey, we're going to push you for best actor yeah. for The Insider. Oh, what, what does Al think? No, Al, Al said, go with the kid. Push the yeah. kid, yeah. And then when... When, when he does that for Giamatti. Yeah, Paul Giamatti's mom well, also, was dying yeah. and, and said, hey, I'm gonna, I'll make sure he gets it. Yeah. You know, it's push the kid. It's the moment awesome. that kills me, there's so many moments that kill me, but the moment where the kid steals the salami because he doesn't want to be sent away, I can already see that. Yeah. Dead, you're just I, thinking I about it. Know. But when, uh, when he's finally getting back into the ring, he's having his sort of resurgence and his wife, Renee Zellweger, who is actually really good in this. Yeah. When she goes to Giamatti and like, how can you do this? I mean, you get to live here in your cushy, your cushy apartment on the Upper East Side or wherever it is they are. And when, she, when he opens the door That's and cool. he's literally mm-hmm. sold everything, that oh, yeah. fucking slays me. Yeah. A couple of films that were unfortunate circumstance. I think it wasn't Cinderella, didn't Cinderella Man come out right around the time of Million Dollar Baby? A year after, it, yeah, 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 a few months and after. It was kind of people were kind of bored of box movies, and Master and Commander came out around the same time as Pirates of the Caribbean. Exactly, right? yeah, like, yeah. Yes. They're only a few months apart. Yeah, it was pretty close. Because I think you had Pirates in the summer, mm-hmm. and then Master and Commander was supposed to be a big awards push. It was out like late October, early November. Yeah, you had the same thing with Cinderella Man, Million Dollar Baby out at the end of two thousand four, and then they just kind of dumped Cinderella Man in it's like, like May. March. Yeah. yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I remember it was like March of 05. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I feel like I my one so beautiful mind is making my is it really not Rushmore yeah I, again I feel like you have to defend that I think it's because for me it would make it on a performance level now as the years have gone on I've softened to that film it's kind of like a pendulum has swung the way of Cinderella Man and away from a beautiful mind for see me. I for me it's it's the the actor in me watches that movie and go I've never seen him do anything even close to that again. It's fucking incredible. I think it the is incredible. performance in that is um, amazing. And that, and it's just, for me, it's that, that emotional range I was talking about. It's like, it's fucking, it's huge. You don't get that in Master and Commander. No, I don't, yeah. I don't feel that way. Yeah. Uh, and, and I just think what his relationships to, to everybody, fictional or not, is just, I, I, I love what he's doing in it. And coming off of these very self-assured confident characters to play this neurotic guy going through a lot mentally. I just, I fucking, I just think it's incredible. I think it's great. Well, I will say, even though I have softened to beautiful mind over the years, I do think it was the wrong choice to give Denzel best I actor. Too. I mm. I think, I think Russell Crowe should have joined that upper echelon with Tom Hanks having two back to back. But I have a whole thing about Denzel should have been nominated for supporting and won. He won. Yeah, no, he's he. Ethan Hawke is the lead in that film. Yeah. End of that's, story. Yeah, that's another thing. Okay, so we all have one left. So what do you have? What's left for me? Yeah, Insider. Fuck yes. Is that, is that all of us? Yeah, that's okay, all of us. Great, great. I, I only Ian I, I alluded to it, but I only just saw this. I thought I had seen it. I was thinking of State of Play. Okay, which is uh, so so. That's fine. Yeah, it's, okay. it's, it's the, one of the British miniseries yeah. is yeah. some of the best six hours of TV you will ever fucking see. Oh really? But uh, but I just saw Insider for the first time. I, I I'm not I don't actually really I didn't really love the process of watching the movie. Like I had, I had a lot to enjoy about it, but it was um, emotionally it's a lot tough. of saxophones. I think. Uh, <laughs> well, that's that's, Mike, of, that's Michael, Michael Mann. Mann. Yeah, 
Um, <laughs> but but the performances were out of this world. I think the only thing that you could say against Insider is it was you could argue it was more of a of a Big Owl and uh, and what's what's Mike Wallace with uh, oh, Jake Plummer? Uh, uh, Chris, oh, Chris Christopher Plummer. Christopher Plummer. Yeah. They they really commanded a lot of your eyeballs, you know, during that course of the movie. But um, I, I still think you have to put in as the top four, especially if you're talking performances. Yeah, so I, what what he did physically, gaining the forty pounds. What did he say in the GQ interview that they had to bleach his hair about seven times yeah. to get it to stick? Yeah. Well, no, but even then it was a wig. Even work. Yeah. 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 Um, it feels like a precursor to like he was a. It was like a practice run for to play Steve, Na- not Steve Nash, uh, John Nash. John Nash. Yeah. Yeah. I. It's so. I saw this movie like when I was like 13 and it shouldn't have worked mm. on me. Yeah, I, I was not that the target sh- demographic no, for this movie. No, that film should go over a 13-year-old's head. And I remember um I remember the scene where the they, the bullet is in the mailbox. Oh man. And I just remember going this shit is real. Like mm-hmm. this like I I started getting like really concerned for the family. Like I, you know, I realized that the story's come and gone, and that they're yeah. they're. Okay. I mean, everybody's alive, but like, I remember feeling that moment. I still kind of do feel that moment. And well, the wife. It's also it's it's also pretty close to the scene with the wife seeing the yeah will kill you email. email. Yeah. yeah, Jesus Christ, that movie is. But there's a moment in The Insider that I love so much because it's so different than any other moment in any other Michael Mann film save maybe The Keep which I haven't seen and and he Michael Mann is disowned and it's fucking impossible to find that film now I don't think it ever got past VHS uh, maybe DVD in some other countries Um, but the moment where he's in the hotel room and they can't get him on the phone and there's that great camera move around him and we have a, a a scene that's that's fantasy where you know the wall dissolves and he sees his children at play yeah like there's no moment in any other michael mann film like that because his films are so grounded in reality and they're so visceral and mm-hmm. real and intense and just i mean in some cases just fucking relentless oh my god he's like uh, that's he talks about the floor that the lights are on. That's a legal department. It's where they fuck with my life. Yeah. Jesus Christ. That <laughs> moment is fucking awesome. And how good is Bruce McGill, his lawyer in that, where he's oh, like, Oh, yeah. No, Why does that smoke off your face? Yeah. 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 Like, he oh, just goes that. for it. Yeah. 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 This is not a trial. I will have my deposition. Mm-hmm. Every That cast, that cast is as good, if not better, than LA Confidential, which oh, I never thought I'd ever hear myself say. Oh, man. But you've got Bruce McGill, Christopher Plummer, fucking swinging for the fences on that was he nominated no are you are you fucking shitting me i'm not try mr wallace oh (laughs) god that's how dare you assume to think that you can edit me yeah obviously pacino i mean it's a it's a late in life philip baker hall philip baker Hall. that shot where you have all three of them in the frame where they're at the table discussing how the episode's going to be cut and you have Plumber, Pacino in the middle, and Baker Hall between. When are you ever going to have three guys on screen together in a single frame? It's just never going to happen again. It's so fucking good. You got Debbie Mazar, who I feel is a little bit underutilized, but she's she serves her purpose really well. She's yep. really good in it. I wish. Who's the, do you have the name of the actress that played his wife? Uh, it's Diane Verona. She's because oh. she's also in Heat. She is in Heat. Yeah, that's right. Oh, she's so fucking good, man. Yeah. She really sells that. Yeah, what a cast. Yeah. I mean, when, when, if, when, and if we ever get around to ranking Michael Mann, it's going to be really oh, hard. I can't wait for I can't that. Wait. That's it's going to be really hard for that to not be in the top three. That's going to be like like because the insider hits me here and yeah. the Heat gets me fucking here, man. Oh, yeah. I'm just fucking like bring it on, Heat. Yeah. 
Cool. So there we do. We want to run down our Mount Rushmores again. I guess I'll take the lead. I've got LA Confidential, the Insider, Gladiator, Master and Commander. And I've got 310 to Yuma, Gladiator, Master and Commander, and Insider. And I have LA, LA Confidential, Gladiator, A Beautiful Mind, and the Insider. Those are all solid Mount Rushmores. I think, yeah. I think, was all of our fifth a C- Cinderella Man? I believe so. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's a fucking such a hard cut. It really yeah. is. That's that. It pains me to cut that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So now I think we've come to the point where we answer the question. I think we've pretty much already answered, but oh. we'll make it official. Uh. Hey, Josh. Do you think that Gladiator should be in the book? Yes. Ian, do you think that Gladiator should be in the book? An unreserved yes. Yes. And I do too. Uh. Uh. <laughs> there you go. Um. We could have asked the question at the beginning, like we did last week with Goodfellas, but. It's it's just it's iconic. The performances are great. It's every, like production wise, score, everything. It, it's this movie is is good. Uh, so there you go. So there we go. Uh, we all think that Gladiator should be in the book, but of course, as always, we want to know what you think. So you could find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Hit us up. Let us know what you think of Gladiator or Ridley Scott or Russell Crowe. We talked a lot about all three of those things. So. Let us know what you think. Um, you can support the show at patreon.com slash 1001 by one. You can find us on Apple, Stitcher, Google, Spotify, all those great places and more. Um, Josh, thank you so much for taking some time and discussing this fucking epic film. We, we, the episode may almost be as long as the movie. So. We, we, are at, <laughs> we are at the final fight. We, we got pretty close. Um, and uh, please stay tuned. Uh, next week, we, we are wrapping up our decade-by-decade decade celebration of film with a movie that I really know nothing about. I'm uh, really excited to go into Besides that it's a documentary. So it feels like it feels like Gladiator was the bang we should have gone out on, but it wouldn't have been true to what we were doing. So we are going to come back to you next week with a documentary that came out in 2010 with some fresh takes because it'll be new to us. But until then, I am Adam. And I am Ian. And we will see you next week. <laughs>